Oh, yeah, well, you don't need perfect credit, uh-huh. Even with credit scores in the 500s, it only takes a cup of coffee to get started. Dig it? Oh, yeah, snap into it. Welcome to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. What a rib? No, you have a big There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. It, it, it. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I ain't scared. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck him. You, Bruce. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. And today we've got a bit of a curveball over on our YouTube channel over at somethingtowrestle.com. We've got a brand new cut of WrestleMania 12 with Bruce and I. That was a uh, snafu of sorts. And now there is brand new content talking about WrestleMania 12 with video. And that's available now at something to wrestle.com. And I know what you're thinking. Hey, didn't you guys cover so many 12, like a couple years ago we did. And somehow we did it again, but a remix of sorts. And it's available now over at something to wrestle.com. Now today here on the main feed, we've got a remix of our conversation about King of the ring, 1993. This is one of the big time sleeper shows in WWE history. In my opinion, uh, you know, this is the last pay-per-view for Hulk Hogan, really the last televised appearance for Hulk Hogan in the world wrestling federation until 2002. So that is what we're going to be hearing today. And by the way, you get JR's take on it for the very first time this coming Thursday on grilling JR. And by the way, the rest of the card. Man, it's not about Hulk Hogan. Yes, that's important. It's all about Brett the Hitman Hart. As the story goes, of course, we were supposed to be headed towards one of two different SummerSlam main events. Now, as a reminder, this is in June of 1993. So we all know what's going to happen on the 4th of July, 1993. As a reminder, the narcissist is in full effect here. Yeah, Lex Luger is a super duper heel, but in just a couple of weeks, he's going to show up and body slam Yokozuna and the Lex Express starts. And we get a big build from the beginning of July, 4th of July, all the way through WrestleMania about Lex Luger trying to be our hero. But on this show, man, he's a low down, dirty dog. He's attacking Tatanka after the bell. Now, if you were reading the observer back then, you heard that the original plan one month prior, we'll call it May of 93 was Bret Hart versus Hulk Hogan. The infamous conversation that really resulted in a giant meltdown with Bruce and I, when we talked about WrestleMania nine, because it didn't happen. And we would have to wait a long time before we saw anything with Bret Hart and Hulk Hogan in the same ring. It would happen in WCW. It never happened here in the WWF. But the photo shoot was supposed to, that was the rumor. That was the plan. But then if you read the observer right after King of the ring, 1993, 
you were led to believe, okay, Hogan put over Yoko so strong because they're doing Hogan and Yoko at SummerSlam 93. So as a reminder, it looks like plan A was Bret Hart and Hulk Hogan for the World Wrestling Federation Championship as your headline event, SummerSlam 1993. That's plan A. It doesn't happen. Plan B was supposed to be, allegedly, Hulk Hogan versus Yokozuna in a rematch from King of the Ring. And then, of course, we know we got plan C. Lex Luger unsuccessfully challenging Yokozuna. Man, it's such an interesting topic. It's an interesting time. And Lost in the Shuffle is this is one of the greatest single night performances by any wrestler ever. And of course, I'm talking about Bret the Hitman Hart. He has matches with Razor Ramon, with Bam Bam Bigelow, and an unbelievable performance with Mr. Perfect. And he does it all while injured. He limps to the ring for match one. And of course, when it's all said and done at the end of the day, there's Jerry the King Lawler to uh, <clears throat> steal his thunder. We're going to talk to Bruce about it today in a bit of a remix. You're going to hear JR talk about it this coming Thursday. So you get different perspectives. And by the way, as a reminder, this is happening in an era where Vince steps down and announces that Linda is now in charge. What in the world is going on now, as we're recording this, or as I'm speaking to you, it is Saturday, June the third on Sunday, June the fourth, crossing my fingers here. I got Bruce Pritchard sitting down to record brand new content and you're going to get that. The plan is tomorrow on Sunday, the fourth. So stay tuned for that. So a bit of a curveball, brand new content about WrestleMania 12 in video form over right now at somethingwrestle.com. A great remix about a great time in WWE history, King of the Ring 1993 with Bruce right now coming at you in your eardrums. And tomorrow, man, we finally get Bruce with brand new content again. Stay tuned to this feed tomorrow. And of course, be back here on Thursday for the Grilling JR show. Uh, that's easy to find. It's uh, grillingjr on youtube.com or wherever you enjoy your podcast. I think King of the Ring 93, low key, one of the most important pay per views in WWE history. Now, without further ado, let's get to it. Let's hear from Bruce Pritchard himself about King of the Ring 1993. See you tomorrow. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to. I almost said, What happened when? I'm doing, what the hell? I'm doing too much. Something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Great. Doing great, man. Just, uh, you know, I'm strolling along here and just got finished up with a great week of MLW wrestling in Orlando, Florida. And if you haven't had a chance, I want everybody to check it out on the BN network. It's every Friday night at eight o'clock Eastern time. And it's a great alternative to all the wrestling that's out there. MLW wrestling. Got to check it out. You know, I got to tell you, I was a little skeptical when I heard that they had a TV deal, but I checked it out and man, the production is legit. They've done a really good job with it. And I don't know how much of that is because of you and how much of that is because of Tony Schiavone. Wait a minute. What? Wait a minute. D hang on. Hang on. It's an MLW show. Hmm. Tony Schiavone's there. Bruce I'm Richard's there. What the fuck? Did I get left out of this deal? I, you know, I think you need something else to do. That's because you got all this downtime, Conrad, <laughs> and it's going to be, you know, I think, you know, what is it? Idle hands lead to 
bad things. Yeah, I, I think you quoted that right, Jerry. Hey, so you had a heck of a week, man, between the MLW tapings this week. And then on Monday, Monday Night Raw. What was that like, man? Being back in the saddle there in Houston, Texas. And you're a big star now. How about that? We mean now. I'm, I'm dude. I, I, what is it? I'm a big star. I uh, my foot hurt so bad a couple weeks ago. I couldn't even get a pedicure. Oh my god! I, I'll never forget that moment. If you're if you're not familiar with what we're talking about, you got to follow us on Twitter. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey. It's Conrad. And man, our Twitter blew up this past week talking about the Bob Holly episode. I've often said that it's the ones that never win polls that sneak up on you. Now, of course. Bob Holly did win a poll, but we had tons of feedback before the show aired. Man, they do Bob Holly was a jobber. He sucks. And then I even got a ton when the show posted over three hours on Bob fucking Holly. Are you serious? And I'm happy to say it's probably the most well-reviewed episode we've ever done. Uh, yeah, it was. And I even picked up the phone and I called one Bob Howard, a.k.a. Bob Holly. And you know, I, he was overwhelmed that with the response that he got and just the fact that we did a show on him. And he was just so happy. So shout out to Bob Holly for being a good sport about everything. And he loved the show as well. So it was pretty damn cool. Man, it's more than cool. You know, that's really the whole idea behind the show is to give you some insight on things that you didn't know. And, and I know it's really popular sometimes to, to vote for your favorite moments, but odds are pretty good. You know, you know what happened. And so like, we're going to cover later this month and I know everybody's very excited about it. The hell in a cell that made Mick Foley and the undertaker forever linked to that match and superstars forever. And, and inspired the comedy toward the 20 year anniversary that Mick's on. But realistically, why can't we cover a whole lot new that you haven't seen between the documentaries and all the shoot interviews and all the books and all the comedy tours? You probably already know all that, but a guy like Bob Holly, man, there's just so much meat on the bone. I can't recommend his book enough. It's Undisputed Truth. It is available at Amazon and anywhere else that you might enjoy uh, books. You can also catch it on Audible, I think. A lot of people were really intrigued by yeah. that. So check it out man support bob holly he has put over the show in a big way and you guys have too if you slept on the bob holly episode see what you're missing you know i think the episode that that reminded me the most of is like jeff jarrett because we had a similar reaction when i said fuck it we're doing a jeff jarrett episode and it was just a ton of hate of i'm skipping this one and i never liked jeff he's not on the show we're talking about his story, and his story is just outstanding. He being Bob Holly, pronouns pal. Of course, this past weekend, uh, we were able to go ahead and put the WWE CW episode in the can, and that is available now on the WWE Network. And we had some of our most spirited fighting in a while on that episode. It might be our biggest WWE Network fight yet. I'm surprised we're on speaking terms right now, if I'm honest. We're not. Good. Well, let's we're not. Hey, but you know what, Conrad? You were talking about the, the King of the Ring that we're going to be doing here in a couple of weeks. I've got something there because that that it, there's some very personal personal moments in that. I'm probably going to end up crying like a pussy. But uh, so it's the usual. I mean, like a regular taping for us, really. How about I? I you know what? I'm going to just bitch slap you here. Ready? Bam. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Hey. Uh -huh. I do feel like we need to um, mention something. We did talk about Matt Capitale a little bit last week on the Bob Holly episode. Matt's going through a real tough time right now, and uh, his GoFundMe is up, and I'd like to mention that. It's go, GoFundMe.com forward slash Matt's Biggest Battle. 
Uh, if you're not familiar, uh, Matt Capitelli is the guy that Bob Holly roughed up that we spent a lot of time talking about last week. We did mention that he was having his battles with cancer. We did not mention that he has a GoFundMe. Uh, he's looking for a lot of help. Every little bit helps. And you can participate at GoFundMe.com forward slash Matt's Biggest Battle. Bruce, you can probably speak to this. You know Matt. I, I do know Matt, and I actually spoke to Danny Davis um, from OVW Wrestling this week as well to get an update on Matt. He's he's really having a rough time right now. He is a great kid, and his wife is, is hanging in there with him. He has, throughout this entire battle, has never had – you know, a negative thought and he's, he's fought constantly. He stayed positive throughout this whole thing. So if there's any way you can help him out, I know that he would greatly appreciate it. His family would greatly appreciate it. And it couldn't go to a nicer guy. Afford anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Great guy and a phenomenal thing. So go find him. Uh, GoFundMe.com. And I guess we should just go ahead and do it to it, man. Let's talk about why we're here. It's King of the Ring 1993. And I've wanted to talk about this show for a long time, Bruce, because this is a show that if you haven't watched it already, I'm going to encourage you to go watch King of the Ring 93. Whether you're a younger fan, a newer fan, you've seen it many times, you haven't ever seen it before, watch King of the Ring 93 this week. It is such a transitional time in the wrestling business. There's so much about this watching it back that just stuck out to me as being kind of odd, whether it was Jim Ross doing commentary with Macho Man and Bobby Heenan. I know they did it at WrestleMania 9, but it just feels a little weird. And then it feels weird to see like Hulk Hogan in the promotion at the same time Diesel is. It doesn't seem like those would have ever touched. Jerry Lawler's here, and he doesn't look like the Jerry Lawler who does commentary with Jim Ross. There's just so much to talk about on this show, and I'm glad that we get the opportunity to. We want you to participate in the show here, of course. But people really need to go watch this doggone thing on the WWE Network, don't they? Uh, I wholeheartedly agree, and it was just so much. It, you know, it's kind of funny when you're talking about Jr. and Bobby Heenan and Randy Savage. To me, one of the funniest things was listening to the frustration in Randy Savage's voice because Randy was still trying to find his way with that with that threesome there as well. And it was, it was tough for Jr. It was tough for Randy and Bobby is just trying to steer the damn ship throughout the whole thing, but, uh, definitely worth the peak and definitely worth going back to such a weird time in the business. King of the ring. 93 goes down on June 13th, 1993. And they're in Dayton, Ohio, and it's a brand new pay-per-view. You know, this is the first time that the WWF has introduced a new pay-per-view since they went to the big four format back in 88, which had the Royal rumble, WrestleMania, SummerSlam and survivor series. And they've had a few one-time pay-per-view events along the way, you know, Tuesday in Texas and things like that. But this is the first time that a new show was introduced. Chat me up about how this came to be a pay-per-view because I think, and we've covered this extensively here on the show. It's not the first King of the ring, even though they're billing it, throughout this thing as the first king of the ring. It's not really, they started at 85. 
That one was held in Foxborough, Massachusetts. Don Morocco won. He beat uh, Arnett Sheik in the finals. They came back to do it in 86 at Sullivan Stadium. And that's again in Foxborough. Here we would see Harley Race defeat Pedro Morales in the finals. And that's when you started to see him really work this King gimmick. And then in 87, Randy Savage pinned King Kong Bundy to win King of the Ring. Uh, 88, Randy Savage makes it to the finals again, but this time he loses to Ted DiBiase by countout. Uh, they would do it again in 89. Tito Santana would beat Rick Martel in the finals. Uh, 91, you would see Bret Hart defeat IRS to win the tournament. And then in 1993 is the first time we see it again. We, we didn't have it in 1992 at all, and we didn't have it in 1990. So there's some inconsistencies. We're sort of playing hokey pokey with the idea, but it's not necessarily a new idea. What's the reasoning or rationale behind let's add it as a pay-per-view and let's bring this tournament concept we've been doing as almost a house show attraction, as you would like to say, and let's offer it nationwide. Well, traditionally, the summer months in some places, particularly in the Northeast, was not always the best time of year for business because in the Northeast, a lot of people would head south. Now, the flip side of that, in the south, the summer months were really good months for the southern territories because you had a lot of population that came down that way. So it was a way to offer a different attraction to try to attract more people to the event and Vince's feeling on it was he wanted to do a themed pay-per-view because we already had WrestleMania, you had SummerSlam, you had Survivor, and then you had the Royal Rumble. He didn't want to just have another pay-per-view to have it with matches. He wanted it to be themed around something, hence the King of the Ring. So let's talk about the way you guys sort of decide on eight wrestlers. There's going to be an eight-man tournament here in 1993. Seven of them have to win qualifying matches to get in the tournament. Of course, Bret Hart gets a pass because of the way he lost the world title to Yokozuna at WrestleMania 9. Shout out to Jack Tunney for making that possible and just sliding him in there. Why eight? Why not 16? Is it just as many matches you could fit in one night? Yeah, just trying to think of having that, that many matches and that many elimination matches, how many times somebody would have to work you know, one night, and we maxed it out at three times, and Brett was the only one that had to work three times. But that's a lot for somebody to have to work in one night. Also, it's a lot for a, an audience to have to watch the same people over and over again. So the idea was you qualify on TV to be able to be entered into this prestigious tournament on pay-per-view, and then we have the actual tournament itself on pay-per-view and just, you know, eight People are qualified for it. Eight men, four matches to start off with and go from there. So the qualifying matches that happened would show Lex Luger being the first man to qualify. He beat Bob Backlund on the May 2nd edition of Wrestling Challenge. Razor Ramon would defeat the former house show king of the ring, Tito Santana, on May 8th on Superstars. Jim Duggan would beat Papa Shango on the May 9th Wrestling Challenge. On May 10th, we would see Bam Bam Bigelow defeat Typhoon to qualify. And on May 15th, Tatanka would defeat Giant Gonzalez by DQ to qualify for the match. A little bit of trivia there. Bill Alfonso of ECW fame was the referee for that one. Do you know why? I assume he was a handler for Giant Gonzalez. 
Exactly. And he, he spoke the language and he was the guy that kind of took Gonzalez around and handled all of his travel arrangements and drove him around and took good care of the giant Gonzalez. And you can usually bet whenever there's a, a big guy, there's probably a small guy around sort of like me and you, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, the next qualifier is determined in a pretty interesting way. We've got Mr. Perfect and doink actually wrestling in three different matches to decide which one of them would be in the King of the ring tournament. The first match goes to a time limit draw. And the second match, also a time limit draw. The third and final match happens on the May 24th raw. It's no time limit. And here perfect would pin doink to qualify for the tournament. Why do they end up doing this series of three matches here? We were wondering, you know, what the rules of the tournament would be and how guys are going to qualify for it. So we kind of backed ourselves into it a little bit and thinking, all right, in a qualifying match, what if it ends up in a draw? And if it ends up in a draw, do you eliminate both guys? And since we had Perfect and Doink, who was Matt Bourne at the time, they were having great matches. And it was a way to have a great match three times in a row. So you got the first match ends in a draw. What the hell do you do? Well, you bring it back. And the winner of this one enters the tournament. It was a way to have a return without having to have a return, so to speak. So you have the second match that ends in a draw to where you finally go to a no time limit match where perfect finally goes over and gets into the tournament. Well, it's a, it's an interesting time for Mr. Perfect here because he's sort of transitioning from I'm retired. I'm a commentator. I'm back in the ring. You know, when, when you're putting him in this sort of featured spot like this, is there any hesitation or do you know he's bankable no matter what? You know, I always felt that Kurt was bankable no matter what. He was, you know, he had that rust when he came back at the Survivor Series the year before. And he had been back at this point, I guess, six months, what have you. He was still getting the rust off. He was still just kind of getting all the dust off of him. But this is where, if you ask me, and you and I said it when we talked earlier today or last week, whatever the hell it was, when we watched this and we both went, to the same thing. Oh my God, that Bret Hart, Mr. Perfect match was so damn good. This was, you know, the point where man, Mr. Perfect is back. We have all of Mr. Perfect now because he was on his game. He had some great matches with Matt Bourne here and had that great match with Brett in the tournament. In a weird way, it almost feels like when you guys are doing these time limit draw matches, it's almost a way for him to work through a longer match like that just to make sure that all that ring rust is off. He's got his wind underneath him. He can pace himself long enough to put on a match like that, that he's clearly going to need for Bret Hart and pay-per-view, right? Yeah. Working with Matt Bourne, Matt's going to make you earn it. And Matt was, you know, he didn't always look it, right? but man, that son of a bitch was in great cardiovascular condition and he would blow you up if you weren't in shape and ready for him. So I guess the question is, is that Pat Patterson thinking, Hey, we need to, we need to sort of push Kurt to the limit. Is that Vince McMahon's call or does perfect say, Hey, let me make sure I'm pay-per-view ready. Give me doink. No, it was, they were having great matches on the house show. So we wanted to replicate those on TV. And the reason, one of the reasons that he was with Matt too, was to get him back in ring shape. They had worked in the Pacific Northwest uh, earlier in their careers, they knew each other and, oh God, you know, Kurt and Doink could have wrestled 
with their eyes closed and had a great match and not with their eyes closed and their mouths taped where they couldn't even speak to each other and have a great match. If you had to compare Doink to someone on the current roster, not the gimmick, the performer, Matt Bourne, his personality, his style, his motor, whatever you want to call it. Could you? Kurt Angle. Okay. What about Mr. Perfect? Mr. Perfect. Um, don't say Ziggler. Everybody does that, but it's because of the hair and the selling. Pick some money. Well, it, you know, he's similar, but I, I was going to go a different way. And I was going to go with, you know, somebody like a Seth Rollins who can work with everybody. There you go. Here's, here's, a cra- here's a crazy one for you. Kevin Owens. Okay. I wouldn't have thought of that. From the, heels, from the heel perspective. Sure. Kevin can go, and, and he's very similar in the way that he works and, and put things out there. Well, let's talk about the May 23rd Wrestling Challenge. Mr. Hughes would defeat Kamala to be the final entrant in the King of the Ring tournament. I'm not uh, I'm not sure when we'll talk about this again. Tell me about the Kamala babyface turn around this time. Of course, Kamala, historically the heel, well, he was the big nasty heel when he was working with Hulk Hogan back in the 80s. You can hear all about that and some pretty funny stuff in that Hogan 87 or Hogan 88 episode. Chat me up, though. <laughs> Kamala the babyface. The audience was loving him. I mean, you know, he would do the. And the audience was getting behind him. So you want to help this poor bastard along. You know, he can't speak the language. He he can't afford shoes. (laughs) Yeah, he's still he's still painting his stomach and everything. I think that the audience just really kind of fell in love with the big lovable bastard. So it was, it was difficult to, it was just really difficult to boo him after a while. He had been around so long. They respected him and they really wanted to get behind him and cheer him. I think. Uh, So help me understand when you're slapping your belly, which, which I respect because that's my move before I jump in the pool. Um, I thought you were going to say it's your move before you do something, before you jump into something else. Hey, Hey, you calm down over there. Um, here was my question though. Was that Kamala's mouth saying that? Because you've sort of made a noise and a grunt like that before where maybe Kamala's gimmick. You mean that one? Before we get into the King of the Ring pay-per-view, let's talk about where the company is here, because I feel like this is important to sort of set the tone for what's happening in wrestling. The average attendance in June of 92, where business was certainly on a bit of a downslide, you were averaging 3,900 fans. By June of 93, just 2,600 fans. So it's a 33% dip here. As far as the gate, the actual money, it mirrors. It's down 33%. You were doing 50700 bucks in June of 92. Here you're averaging $33,930. The house shows are just flat, not selling. But oddly enough, television ratings are up a T-tiny bit, a tenth of a point. Where is the, the, the company from a summer of 92 perspective? And I know you weren't quite there back again in June 92, but you are here in June 93. Is this the first time you can sense a real noticeable slide in company revenue since you've been there? Because it feels like you guys have sort of been on the upswing. There may have been a couple of little dips or peaks or valleys here or there, but this is the first noticeable, like, oh shit, things are changing. 
Yeah, this, and this was especially for me, and I've been away for a little over a year. To, so to come back and kind of get into this, it was a little eye-opening. It was, damn, man, we, we've got a fight on our hands, and we need to change something. There was definitely a, a feeling of, it wasn't, sure, it wasn't desperate, but it was, damn it, we've got to change. We haven't changed in so long. And when you look, went back and looked at the model, for so many years, we had followed that same model, and it was all about you know the holster on top and the you know the big baby face champ. Well, we had made a change with with Brett, and then we man immediately when that opportunity arose at WrestleMania nine, made the change back to Hulk, and it, it just was um, it was a learning curve. It, it was a learning curve, and we were feeling it for the first time business wise in a long time. And as if that's not enough, all of a sudden, you guys have a lot more on your plate. Meltzer would report in the June 7th Observer that Vince McMahon had resigned as president of Titan Sports about two weeks back. And while that is a major news item, it was largely being kept hush-hush. He was technically both the president and CEO. That's the largest wrestling company in the United States. But here, he's transferred control over to his wife, Linda, allegedly sometime in mid-May. Now, he's still going to remain CEO of Titan Sports and will remain as a television personality, but Titan was not hoping that this information would get out, but it is sort of well known that NBC is going to start working on a story, and all of this has to do with the ongoing federal investigation about steroids, of course. They acknowledge this publicly to people in the company in Halifax on May 24th, where Vince addresses the crew and says that Linda is now the president of the company, taking a spot he's had since 1982. Were you there for this meeting? And are people sort of starting to panic? Because this federal investigation, there had been whispers for a while, but when you see a move like this, you've got to start to look around and say, oh, shit, are we in trouble? Wait a minute, I'm I'm really confused here because... I thought Jerry Jarrett was brought in to be the president of the company and run the company. Listen, I'd really like to not talk about Jerry Jarrett today. Can we get through this episode and not talk about Jerry Jarrett? I can't make any guarantees about that. Okay. Can you answer this question? Well, no, th- this was a move you know, made by Vince because of the, the investigation and because of us going to trial and everything. And Vince also wanted to, you know, this was public. I don't know where they get that this was something that was kept hush hush. We announced it publicly so that it wasn't, you know, per se, the president of Titan Sports going on uh, trial with the whole steroid distribution deal. So Vince just in name, you know, made Linda the president. And also Vince was concentrating more on the creative end of things. Their roles really didn't change other than title. Okay, because... You know, I wanted I wanted you to sort of stand on what you said there because you said the title change. You know, it, he transferred the title change. Name. Yes, yeah, but but really, as far as productivity, same same, same same. You know, that's <sighs> why you know when people say, "Oh, they brought L- Linda," you know, was I don't even remember what the hell Linda's title was before that. But you know, she was all you know they. She ran her end, the business end of the of the. Of the business, Vince ran TV in the creative end, oversaw everything, was the president in title and in function. But, you know, in a lot of ways, it was it was in title. 
So when Meltzer reaches out to the Titan spokesperson, I'm going to butcher this fellow's name. Is it Steve Planamenta? Steve Planamenta. There you go. So when he reaches out to Steve Planamenta, Steve says, hey, this is not really a resignation and sort of downplays the charges saying, quote, it's not a big a deal as people are making it out to be. People are reading into things that really aren't there. And he would describe the activities of Linda and Vince as that Linda has largely been running the business end of the company and Vince has really been running the creative aspect. So no real changes. Is there any sort of within the office or the boys? This does feel a little bit like nothing to see here. Move along folks. Because when a change like this happens and you're also hearing a whisper campaign of, uh, Hey, business is down and they're looking into the steroid deal. Vince might be in trouble. People have to, I mean, it's natural to sort of speculate and or worry, right? What was that like at the time? Well, I think that the, the worry and the speculation was running rampant and people were wondering, oh my God, you know, do they think that, that Vince is going to go to jail on all this stuff? And, and that's where, you know, because you, you can't ignore the Jerry Jarrett rumor and innuendo at this point, because that's, you know, they were feeding into that and people looking around going, what are they going to do if this happens? It was going to be business as usual, and that's why Vince felt it important to give Linda that title, you know, on a what if. But nothing internally changed. Vince was still doing his job day to day. Linda was doing her job day to day. And other other than in title, that's the only thing I ever remember changing. One of the things that comes out is that NBC was reaching out to former WWF wrestlers who now work for WCW trying to get their testimony. And it almost feels like, you know, a lot of guys would be anxious to sort of testify against the old boss. Did you guys hear that, that maybe that was the strategy? Don't go after the current roster guys who might be worried about sort of snitching and it affecting their livelihood. Let's go after guys who were maybe bitter or disenfranchised with working with Vince McMahon. Well, yeah. I mean, when, if you're going to look for a story, you want to look for disgruntled people. So of course that's why they went after people that were no longer working with the company to try and say something bad about the company. It's the same thing that the United States government did. They, you know, went after people outside of the company who had left the company and said, Hey, will you say this about Vince McMahon? And will you say this about Titan sports? So NBC, I guess, working on their story had the same strategy. So here's something we get asked about a lot, but we've never actually really covered. Um, Tom Cole, is piling on the company here. Of course, their business is down. Now they've got all this Zahorian stuff hanging over them. And now a former ring boy named Tom Cole, who'd sort of been disparaging the company for around a year, officially files a lawsuit asking for $1.6 million in damages against Titan Sports, Pat Patterson, Mel Phillips, and Terry Garvin. Meltzer would write, this is a long, involved story with many twists and turns. The lawsuit is a three-parter. Part one reopens claims of sexual harassment of a homosexual nature by top WWF officials. Cole first brought forth these claims last year in a front page article in the San Diego union. The story didn't name any names, but did detail certain situations and had other ring boys claim sexual abuse was prevalent. Almost immediately Patterson Phillips and Garvin, who were the three men Cole's initial claim were about, but whose names have been yet to been brought into the public resigned their positions. Obviously this is a big deal at the time, Bruce. And I know we're going to talk about this. I guess we should clarify here. 
that um, Pat Patterson is a friend of the show here, and Pat Patterson has never been found guilty of anything ever, to my knowledge. Pat Patterson has never been charged with anything either. And the reason that Pat Patterson resigned was Pat didn't want to place any undue negative on the company. Uh, He was lumped in to a lot of this stuff just because of the fact that he was gay and he was openly gay. And Pat didn't want to bring any negative. And Pat did not have any charges, you know, against him uh, in this. You know, I never I wasn't there when this guy filed this lawsuit. I never met him. I didn't know him. You know, when I was there before, I couldn't pick him out of a lineup then or today, but it was, you know, a nuisance more than anything. And it got thrown out of court where, you know, because I guess the guy didn't really have a case at all other than a lot of rumor and and hearsay stuff. So that's really about all I remember. They hired him back for a very short time. Yeah, let me mention that. There, there was a settlement reached between Cole and Titan Sports a year prior to this where Cole received $55,000 and was rehired as a ring boy and then offered a tryout as a ring announcer. As part of the settlement, according to the complaint here, Cole agreed to never bring up the charges again, and Titan agreed to never ask him to retract his initial charges. The lawsuit, of course, claims that Titan has breached the settlement because they failed to give Cole a tryout as a ring announcer, which is largely the crux of this entire new lawsuit, which is breach of contract. And he also says that Titan continually attempted to get Cole to go public and retract his sexual abuse and harassment charges. I do find it interesting that so many people talk about these claims and they talk about this lawsuit, but they really don't follow up on the fact that the reason he's suing here for $1.6 million dollars is essentially because he didn't get a tryout as a ring announcer, as he was promised. Yeah, it's crazy. And had, you know, as far as I know, had zero experience as a ring announcer. Um, it, it's it's sad. And like you say, people, you know, bring it up and point fingers and everything else. But when you boil it down to the crux of what the lawsuit's about, it boils down to a lot of silliness. Here's some more silliness. The third part of the claim or the suit rather would claim that Titan officials attempted to get Cole to sign an affidavit stating that things weren't true about his brother who at the time was going on several radio stations, making claims. Now his brother is named Lee Cole and Tom Cole would say in this suit that he didn't want to sign it, but finally did because Titan wouldn't allow him to leave a room until he signed it. And he's essentially claiming that he was falsely imprisoned. <laughs> and this is directly from the observer. While this isn't certain, given the wording of the Titan lawsuit against Phil Mushnick, it can be ascertained that the statements Cole signed claimed Mushnick and Lee Cole had conspired against Titan and induced Tom to create an untrue story, which may have been a key point in the lawsuit against Mushnick. Man, there's so much meat on the bone here where Phil Mushnick, who was probably public enemy number one against Vince McMahon, you guys at Titan had some reason to believe that Tom Cole's brother Lee was in cahoots with Phil Mushnick. Did you ever hear that? Well, I don't think that there would have been anything if they didn't have any evidence to that, you know, to that fact. So again, I'm not, I'm not privy to that, so I I can't really speak on it, but there was an awful lot of coercing on Phil Mushnick's part. Same thing, trying to get people to give him information and say anything about Vince McMahon and Titan sports for whatever reason, 
you know, Phil Mushnick just hated Vince and hated the company and hated professional wrestling and professional wrestling fans. Let's talk about this because I don't know when we will again, because we're not going to do a ring boy scandal lawsuit. There's just, I just don't know how we would effectively cover that. This is probably it. There's always been almost, I mean, it's such a weird thing to even talk about, but there's almost like a weird double standard in wrestling where, you know, and, and people have a lot of fun talking about guys in Memphis, liking young girls and things like that. And I'm not naming anyone in particular. I'm just saying a lot of guys got themselves in trouble down there and lawsuits in that area because there was such a large female contingent. And even guys like Art Barr have had situations with, with underage girls. And it just became sort of oddly commonplace and weirdly accepted in the old days of professional wrestling. I mean, you would agree with that, right? That there were guys who engaged in inappropriate relationships with underage girls. And a lot of the other locker room would sort of turn a blind eye to it because it, it was sort of commonplace at the time, which is not popular to say. I, I think probably years ago in the territorial, uh, days and in different parts of the country. Yes. And there were also, you know, a lot of places where that was also frowned upon. And if you get an old promoter like Paul Bosch, oh, my God. Um, he hated that. However, you know, there were also those promoters that would say, hey, guys, you got to get out there and, and you've got to bring those young girls in. So it was, you know, there were both sides of that coin. And, and I think that in the old territory days that that was accepted a lot more commonly than, in later years. Yeah, definitely. Well, here's what I wanted to say though. Like that almost feels like it gets a pass and I don't think it should. I mean, we're talking about on some level, these are adults preying on children and that's right. not popular to say, but that's fucking what it is. If, if you're 30 and you're talking to a 14 year old girl, you're preying on fucking well, that's children. Sick. I agree, but it was, I mean, you read stories and guys just sort of <laughs> about it and it's not fucking cool. But at the same time, it's like when you talk about the ring boy thing, everybody gets caught up. So my question is, because I, I, we haven't heard as much about this. I'm not saying it happened here in the WWF or for Vince McMahon or Titan Sports. I'm not insinuating that at all. But I am saying with the homosexual contingent within wrestling, was some of that sort of looked at the same way? Like how some of the guys sort of turned a blind eye to hanging out with underage girls did some of the homosexual stars have that same attitude to hanging out with young boys? That doesn't feel like it's that far of a stretch for me. Well, no, I, I would have to disagree wholeheartedly on that because I feel that there was a lot of homophobia and I think that there were unnecessary rumors and things that were brought up just because someone happened to be a homosexual. And I don't know that necessarily that there was as much of that because they were homosexual that they didn't want to draw any more attention to themselves. Okay. Well, that's fair. I mean, I wouldn't have thought about that, but back then I'm sure being a homosexual in a locker room was rather was difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, again, Pat Patterson is one of my best friends and he, he's got a great book, you know, it's called accepted, but he talks about how difficult it was to exist in what is perceived as, you know, straight man's business 
and being in locker rooms with guys and and the guys could brag about their conquest the night before with this girl. Right. What what could he brag about? Oh boy, I had this guy, you know, last night and yeah, and and there is the the whole and this is, you know, what it is at the time. There was certainly a perception that if you were going to be a badass, that if you were going to be a manly man, then you couldn't quote unquote be a sissy or whatever. You know, now, we know now that's all bullshit, but that was sort of commonplace thinking back then that you had to sort of ooze machismo and you had to, you know, you had to like girls to be a badass. You couldn't right. possibly kick ass and like guys, that's not what you do. You're dainty and whatever. Yeah. It's just, exactly. it's, it's a weird deal, man. And I'm glad we got to talk about it because it is something that, you know, happened in wrestling, but this whole Tom Cole thing, man. All right, let's keep going here. Um, Hulk Hogan's second weekend of house shows would be labeled a disappointment. According to the observer, he's, he's back here and he's working in Winnipeg and in Minneapolis and in Albany. He only drew 6,500 in Winnipeg, only 3,300 in Minneapolis and only 3000 in Albany. This is just a few years after. Hulk Hogan was drawing a multiple of this. Is this an eye opener for Vince, for Hogan, for everybody? Yeah, I think it was an eye opener for everybody. And it also kind of led credence to something, you know, we, we had said it even before WrestleMania nine and talked about maybe it's time to turn Hulk heel. Maybe it's, it's time they're, they're sick of Hulkamania. They had had their fill of Hulkamania at that time. Um, I think the audience was tired and they were clamoring for something new. And we kept going back to the well. There's a, there's a story in the observer that the WWF had negotiated a deal with Kyoto Tokyo, which was one of the biggest concert promoters in Japan. And they're doing this because they want to run shows in Japan on their own without some sort of local wrestling affiliation. And Meltzer would sort of speculate that Hogan's probably not going to be a part of this because he's doing a deal with new Japan. And a lot of people think he was probably going to be the major draw that would leave undertaker, bam, bam, Bigelow, Brett, Sean, and Luger to be the big draws there. But some of those names maybe don't mean nearly what a Hogan does in Japan. And Meltzer sort of speculating that it might be tough to sell tickets and do really well over there. Without a Japanese baby face on top. Do you recall conversations with Vince about him wanting to get into Japan and you guys having to sort of work around Hogan because of his new Japan interest? Well, you know, Hogan had a new Japan loyalty that he did. And Hulk didn't want to upset the apple cart over there because he felt that if he leaves WWE and he goes to Japan, he had his bread buttered there with new Japan. Um, even though he did go over there with us with Tenru's group, um, I think he was still you know, just trying to hedge his bets there. You know, this was just an exploratory deal. Mickey Brett's company in England, they had made some overtures and they were worldwide concert promoters. So Vince said, yeah, definitely we're interested in going to Japan. We were also interested in going to Australia where they had some interests, Australia, New Zealand. And it was just an exploratory deal. That's where Vince was he always had that itch to take over the world and promote everywhere all over the place. And the steadfast, if you were to listen to the 
the Dave Meltzers of the world. And certainly if you were to listen to the Japanese promoters, the only way to draw in Japan is with the Japanese baby face. Right. And we bought into that. And for a long time, we felt that was the only way to break into the market. And while that, you know, is definitely good for name notoriety, we found out later that the Japanese market was no different than any other market all over the world and that we could go in with our stars and put them on top and, and go in with the WWE show and they would pay to see it because they could get their stars all the time. It's worth mentioning that um, Hogan had worked some shots that year for New Japan. He worked against Great Muda uh, and that went down, uh, I think, on May 3rd. He did another shot on September 26th. So even before this King of the Ring show, he's already doing some dates in New Japan. And while he's the world champion, I don't know when we'll talk about this again, he's doing promos on Japanese TV with the winged eagle, the WWF world title over his shoulder, where he's saying that the IWGP belt is the most important belt in the world. Now, lots of people have been critical of him in recent years when this video has surfaced. But you got to remember in 1993, essentially there is no fucking internet. (laughs) Nobody's ever going to see this. It was just in Japan. He's trying to hype up the importance of this payday for this company. WWF fans aren't going to see this. English speaking fans aren't going to see this. As far as Hogan knows, this is one and done on TV. Nobody knew. Oh, there's going to be these computers, brother. They're going to use phone lines, man. And everybody's (laughs) going to know what you said, dude. Yeah, that wasn't the thinking in uh, this time. You know, here we are in, God, 1993, and computers were were not something that everybody had. I don't even think we had them in the office yet at that point. So, no, it was was all about hyping that event for New Japan on that one night. That was all it was about. Well, I mean, I'm sure you had computers in 93, but you probably weren't hooking up to the Internet. I mean, you're, you're using fucking Word or whatever. Hey, so chat me up though. Did you ever see that video? Have you ever seen it? Did Vince ever see it or hear about it? Is there a reaction at all? Or does everybody get it? Like I just freestyled. Oh my God. It was, it was no big deal. He was in Japan doing a promo for Japanese promotion for that match. So that was, that was not a big deal because again, we weren't over there promoting in Japan yet. And so it was one night, you know, For that particular match, it wasn't a big deal on our side. All right, let's get to the uh, King of the Ring pay-per-view. These guys draw a sellout, 6,500 fans here, paying a gross of $78,000 at the gate. Didn't actually sell out until the night of the show, but hey, roll tide, they sold it out. The buy rate was a 1.1, which translates to roughly $2.6 million as a gross. Considering some of the uh, other business you'd been doing at the time, pretty good numbers, huh, Bruce? Well, it was nice to sell out. And, you know, the Nutter Center was a new, it was a pretty damn new building at the time. And I still have the sweatshirt from the Nutter Center that we all got that night. You know, I, uh, I knew a girl. Let's, let's keep going. So Bret Hart wrestled Razor Ramon. Uh, that's the first match on the card. Bret comes out sort of limping on his way to the ring and they get three stars in the wrestling observer as they work 10 minutes and 27 seconds. Uh, Ramon is signaling for the razor's edge as the finish, but then Hart turns it into a cradle for a near fall. 
And then Ramon goes for a backward suplex, but Hart turns in midair, falls on him. Really creative finish. Good match to start with. And two Hall of Fame talent, man. Hell of an opening match, I thought. How about you? Yeah, I thought it was an excellent match. You know, and the the audience was into the one, two, three kid raised Ramon uh, angle that we had started. They had good one, two, three chants that were going crazy that night for Razor. So he had some pretty damn good heat. And I, again, sometimes you forget, you get used to seeing guys all the time. And I forgot just how big Scott Hall's a big son of a bitch. He really is. I mean, I think people sort of sleep on him because, you know, he was paired with Kevin Nash for so long and Kevin Nash is a seven footer, but Scott Hall is every bit as tall as Hulk Hogan. I mean, Scott's a big boy and he can go. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Hey, so let's talk about the match itself. Uh, You know, one of the things that Brett would write in his book, he was instructed to directly from Pat Patterson is don't win any matches with the sharpshooter. And Brett doesn't really understand why, but whatever they work a spot with razor where he stomps his hand in this very first match. And they're saying, Hey, that broke my fingers. And they're using that as a reason to not be able to apply the sharpshooter for the rest of the night. I know we've, uh, we've had our time here talking about the pros and cons of Bret Hart in the ring and out of the ring, but that's some fucking good stuff right there. Is it not? No, that's, that's some great stuff right there. When you go back and you watch something that simple, he also, Brett was so good. We're talking 1993. Now Brett was so good about having those nuances in his match, but he was also smart because then he would go and he would talk to the commentators and let the commentators know what the story of his match was, know what the story for Bret Hart was that entire night. And for a guy like Jim Ross, man, that's commentary gold because that's something that JR could then pick up on. And Bobby Heenan, they could pick up on it. And we told that story all the way through the night. So it was, I thought it was genius. No doubt about it. Good stuff, man. Um, if you have, again, I can't recommend it enough. You've got to watch this. We should touch on Brett's book because Brett wrote about this show because it is a, a sort of a critical moment in his career. I guess we should set the stage for you. If you haven't already, you need to go listen to our WrestleMania nine episode, because that's the pay-per-view that happened right before this one, of course, and they weren't doing pay-per-views every month. So that WrestleMania nine was the most recent pay-per-view. And in the main event, it's Bret Hart defending his world title against Yokozuna. Yoko would beat him. And then Hogan beats Yoko. So the person who leaves as world champion in the Bret Hart Yokozuna match is Hulk Hogan. And we cover that in long form and discuss the rumor and innuendo around SummerSlam and sort of what Brett believed to be the case. And all of that is going to change here tonight. So that's sort of the underlying theme of the show. And this episode is essentially part two. You need to go listen to the WrestleMania nine episode to hear the whole story. Brett would write in his book, though, I showed up in the dressing room for King of the Ring in a dark mood and promptly drew a blackboard cartoon of beefcake with his face buried in Hogan's ass cheeks with a caption that read, be careful, Brutus. You don't want to loosen the screws in your face. Speaking of screws, I was taking my frustration out on beefcake, which wasn't right, but I was too pissed off to know it at the time. Do you remember Bret Hart's demeanor heading into this? Of course, he was the champ. Now he's not the champ. Hogan is. He's got to feel like I'm going to get my shot with Hogan and I'm going to get a sharpshooter win over Hogan. But now he realizes here that shit's not happening. Ain't happening. And Brett 
Brett was upset. Brett came in. Brett was pissed off. And Brett felt that, you know, the, the rightful match was Hogan and Brett at SummerSlam for the title and that Brett should have beat Hogan for the championship. And that was something, you know, Hogan was on his way out. And that was something, you know, Vince had made that decision. And, of course, all that heat goes to Hogan as far as Brett's concerned. And Brett came in. I, I remember the I remember the chalkboard because every night Brett would draw something different on the chalkboard. And it was like, come on, Brett, you know, chill out. But he was he was pissed off. He was pissed. He was in a foul mood. That's the best way to put it. Next up, we've got Mr. Perfect working with Mr. Hughes. They're going to go six minutes and two seconds. Meltzer would write, Perfect sold big for him early since he's still largely unknown and needs to be gotten over as a new monster. Hughes is impressive in one thing. For a guy his size, he comes off the ropes great, but that's it. Some problems working together and some big bumps by Perfect before Hughes was disqualified for hitting him with the urn he quote-unquote stole from Undertaker that aired earlier in the weekend. Star in a quarter. Mr. Hughes had sort of an interesting run here with the company. It seems like he was always in and out hokey pokey style for very short runs. What were you guys thinking about Mr. Hughes here in June of 93? Well, we thought, we thought we had a big, you know, a big bastard for a good heel. And I, I disagree with Dave as I usually do. I thought that Hughes looked pretty damn impressive in there. He was a big guy that could move. He could do some impressive things there. When people look at the business strictly as a work and you think that everything should be pretty and perfect, when you watch a real wrestling match or you watch the MMA, there's shit that gets fucked up. There's guys don't always cooperate, you know, as if it's a work and make it look too easy. We know it's a botch spot, but the audience doesn't. And I thought that, you know, perfect and Hughes told a good story. I thought Hughes looked pretty damn impressive in this, and he was a big guy that we were bringing in, hoping to be a a, a big heel, nasty challenger. Now, speaking of nasty challengers, Bam Bam Bigelow is working with Jim Duggan here in four minutes and 59 seconds. Uh, here's what Meltzer would say. Duggan tried to spear, missed, and hit the turnbuckle. Bigelow then scored the pin after a headbutt off the top rope. Duggan is awful, but that's hardly news, is it? quarter star. I got to tell you, man, you know, sometimes most of the time I have a similar taste for wrestling as, as Dave Meltzer, but I really enjoyed this match for what it was. It's five minutes and it's sort of old school Southern wrestling. These guys are making everything matter. They're looking to the crowd for everything. If you went to house shows or spot shows or independent shows or basically non-televised wrestling anywhere in the South or the Midwest for that matter, you got a lot of this style match and it was reminiscent of that to me. And everything about this show was just nostalgia for me from the way the ring looks and the, the way the, the crowd looks and the sets and all of this was just nostalgia. And so was Jim Duggan, even though he was in different gear here, he's not just in the blue trunks. He's got the singlet. I really I love his gear. Yeah, I thought I thought it was good. And he is very old school and and sort of getting the heat. No, he's not doing, you know, corkscrew planches and he's not working a strong style. But it was an entertaining match for what it was his five minutes. 
I thought it was damn entertaining. It was two big bastards out there, you know, locking horns and big alos and big impressive son of a bitch. I thought that they had a pretty damn good match for two big guys going out there. I'll tell you, you know, I know that this pay-per-view is not usually well-received, but I really enjoyed Bret Hart and Razor Ramon. I thought that I've always been a, an undercover mark for Mr. Hughes because I just thought the bodyguard gimmick, I mean, he looks like the prototype for a villain in a movie, right? He's like, oh, yeah. He's, he's like, Nasty. The, like whoever the big boss is who's like behind the desk petting a cat. Well, Mr. Hughes is like the last guy you go through to get to that guy. I mean, so he was perfect for that. I've always been a Mr. Perfect fan. But then, you know, this Bam Bam Bigelow, Jim Duggan thing was just all nostalgia. So, I mean, I really enjoyed these first three matches. And I thought they were solid going. And again, to me, going back, you know, 25 years it's been. And I thought that, that, that it held up. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I don't expect, you know, an AJ style, Seth Rollins style match when Jim Duggan's out there. I, my expectations are set properly. That's not what he does, you know, however, after we're putting all this over and I just don't understand it. It came to a screeching halt for me with Tatanka and Lex Luger and Meltzer fucking liked it. He gave it two and a quarter stars, but he gave both, you know, the Bigelow match and the perfect match, you know, really inferior ratings, a star and a quarter for Mr. Perfect and a quarter star for Bam Bam. This Tatanka match goes 15 minutes as a draw. And it eliminates both guys in the process. And they're making a really big deal with Luger's out sort of posing with the mirror and the mirror. I'm going to talk about that because it's a lot different from the mirror we've seen before. It's less ornate. It's got the big base on it. So the ring can, the ring canvas can move around and it won't tip over. It's also not real glass, you know, or, or, or you know, a real traditional mirror. It's like a reflective surface. You can tell if you know what to look for. So there's lots of precautions taken here to make sure that this thing is sort of ring ready and not a danger or an embarrassment, but there are little subtle things that make you think maybe they're going to do something different with Luger. And we start to hear it a lot after the Hulk Hogan match, but for one, there's not like this gaggle of women and all the sparklers and the pomp and circumstance that there were at WrestleMania nine but he is still sort of doing heel stuff in his post-match. Did you guys know at this point before he goes out there? All right, goddamn pal, we're going to start you on a tweener routine. Going to be a baby face coming up. Or did you not know yet? We really didn't know yet, but knowing Vince, you know, Vince loved Lex. He loved the look, you know, for me watching, watching this whole damn thing, you know, first of all, Lex had to be reminded work the mirror because at first, you know, he just was oblivious going in about his stuff and he was going to wait to work the mirror until Tatanka comes out. And it's just like, dude, work your gimmick, go to the mirror, be the narcissist. Um, and then of course my, my favorite part about it is, is Tatanka comes out with a tomahawk and <laughs> you know, he attacks a man with a tomahawk. Lex does. And it was, it was god awful. And how again, uh, I'm with you as far as Meltzer, how he can rate the match of Bam Bam Bigelow and Hacksaw Jim Duggan, whatever the hell he rated it, and then rate this one good. It was, it wasn't good, and it was Tatanka was a load. Tatanka's a big, thick son of a bitch. 
He is heavy. He's big. He's thick. And and he could go. Taka was a damn good worker. But to me, this was just oil and water with Lex and Tataka, and it was just god damn. From from Lex, you know, not wearing the pad, and and then and then the pad. They make a big deal about Lex wearing the pad on his on his forearm, right? We should explain this. Lex Luger had been on the shelf because he had to have uh, steel plates and screws put into his elbow or forearm. And so there he's been knocking guys out with this. That's sort of the gimmick. And beforehand, the referees bring him a pad and demand that he put it on or say that he's going to be disqualified. And it is sort of fun because they're saying the steel plate is in his forearm and not his elbow, but they want him to put the fucking pad on the elbow. No, they want him to put, no, he was supposed to put it on his forearm. He would just pull it up to his elbow. Well, the whole thing is just ridiculous. Silly. Yeah. It was, it was, it was the drizzling shits because Lex wouldn't wear it right and didn't do it right. And there was, and there was no big sell there. And then he, you know, oh, it just sometimes wanted to pull my hair out with all that going through. And it was, it was brutal. It was brutal. When I think of fathers and sons, I think about shaving your balls just in time for father's day. Friends, father, son deal. It is. I'll never forget. It is. I mean, I remember you told me about the time you taught Kane to pull them tight. Yeah. Friends, family, loved ones. I bet you haven't purchased a Father's Day gift yet. Have you? Not to fear the leaders in below the waist grooming are here. Of course, I'm talking about Manscaped. They're saving the day yet again with a total package for the father figure in your life this year. It's time to upgrade his game from waist to face with this exclusive offer. Have him join the 8 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped and get yourself 20% off plus free shipping with the code STW at manscaped.com. It all starts with the ultimate father's day MVP, the performance package 4.0 inside the package. You'll find the lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, the brand new weed whacker 2.0 ear and nose hair trimmer, the crop preserver, ball deodorant, the crop reviver toner, the performance boxer briefs, and a travel bag to hold all the goodies. And don't forget they've absolutely changed the game. With the new Manscaped Beard Hedger Pro Kit for dads all around the world, you get the Beard Hedger Trimmer, the Shampoo and Conditioner for the Beard, the Beard Oil, the Beard Balm, and two free gifts in the Beard Comb and the Scissors. And man, dads love being comfortable. Take it from Bruce. Uh, I don't even want to tell you what he wears around the house. But if his grooming routine is already dialed in, be sure to hook up dad with the Manscaped Boxers 2.0. Without a doubt, the best boxers for men of all ages. Whether your dad's mowing the lawn or taking out the trash or golfing in the sun, we got moisture wicking boxers here that are going to let him breathe without breaking a sweat. Why not get 20% off with the code STW at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Just use the code STW. Make Father's Day one he won't forget with Manscaped. And by the way, I want to mention that, you know, it's important to remind everybody that Yes, dads need t-shirts and they need socks and they need ties, but all of that stuff is going to be something he won't even remember. You gave him a year from now, but dad will never forget the year that you gave him the gift of freshly shaved balls, shaven balls. Well, also going to give you another pro tip. Okay. Get, get two, get one for yourself. Mm, I like that. You're going to be glad you did. 
Because once dad uses it, he's not going to share. I don't want to share my stuff that's shaving my stuff. Okay? Get your own cane. I've given you three of them. Now, every time I get a new one, you don't need to come in and take mine. Now, I know you're listening to this, son, and I hate to have to say this to you over the whole broadcast world for everybody to hear, but it's a pro tip for the rest of you kids out there. When you get your dad one, pick one up for yourself. You won't be sorry you did. And use that promo code STW. There's long rest holds here. You know, they're going to go to a 15-minute time limit draw, and it's not like these guys are, you know, mad technicians here. But they've got lots of near falls. And then towards the end of the match, it looks like, hey, maybe they're going to beat it. But of course they don't, they go to a draw and then Luger demands five more minutes and the crowd pops, which in theory seems like maybe a baby face thing to do. And Tatanka had, had hit him with the mirror, right. To, to begin with, so even though he was narcissistic for posing with himself, you know, they do that. Well, then he tear after the match, he tears off the pad. And then nails Tataka and knocks him out after the bell, after the match is over. So it's, it's sort of an interesting deal where he's doing some good guy stuff. He's doing some bad guy stuff. The reason I'm mentioning this is they're going to drive home after the Hogan match that Hogan wasn't able to slam Yokozuna and they don't just talk about it in the match. They keep talking about it for the rest of the show and Hogan couldn't slam Yokozuna, not just, Hey, Hogan lost. And Oh, by the way, Hogan's eyesight's okay. Most of all, Hogan couldn't slam Yokozuna. So that makes me believe that maybe the guys didn't know, but as you said, Vince knew we're getting getting somebody to fucking slam Yokozuna on independence day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that big bastard. And plus we wanted to, you know, even if Vince didn't have the guy, um, at the right time and it wasn't Lex and he didn't decide to make that switch all at the same time. You know, it, it was still, that's a hell of an attraction. Come slam this giant Japanese champion on Independence Day on the USS Intrepid in 107 degree weather and pass out on deck with us. Well, the thing that's interesting to me too, is if you didn't know that you were going to continue that way with him, you might've continued him in the tournament, but by having him out right here, it defeats in a time limit draw. It keeps him tough. So he doesn't take an L here from a good guy or a bad guy, but it does solidify that. Hey, if he gets that forearm after you, your ass is going down, which in theory could make him a legitimate threat for Yokozuna. Absolutely. Uh, so let's talk about the next match. I mean, best match of the night and it ain't even close. Uh, it gets four and a quarter stars from the observer. This is as bad as good as it's going to get. You got to go watch this. And I, you and I talked about this before. Which do you prefer SummerSlam 91 with Brett and perfect or here at King of the ring 93? I preferred 91 because that feels like Bret Hart's coming out party. You've got, you know, it's in Madison square garden. You know, he's always been sort of a, a tag team wrestler. Now he's got the shot at the big belt, you know, at least for what we think his level is going to be. I mean, I thought Bret Hart was going to be intercontinental champion forever I never imagined he would go on to be world champ. Not because he wasn't capable. I just thought Bret Hart was like the perfect, pardon the pun, intercontinental champion. And his mom and dad were there at MSG. I just think that one tells such a great story with all that. But you actually prefer this one. And here's why I, I prefer this one. And, and I'm taking nothing away from the SummerSlam match because it was a great emotional match. And it was probably a better match. Here's why I love this match. Because to me, 
it's solidified. Mr. Perfect is back. And we finally had the Kurt Hennig of old was in the ring. And we knew that, okay, now we can go with this son of a bitch. And we felt confident that he was, he was back a hundred percent. So for me, I was excited about that. The match itself off the chart and the guys really did a hell of a job busting their ass in there and telling a great, great story. You know, we talked about earlier, Razor stomping the fingers and the fingers being broken and Kurt going to it and then selling the knee in the way that, you know, uh, Brett feigned injury on the knee. I just thought, kids, if you want to be a wrestler, wrestlers, if you listen, if you're listening to this right now and you want to go back and watch a great match psychology wise, go back and watch this match from the 93 Rumble, Bret Hart and Mr. Perfect. I guess we should tell you that before they actually get out there, even Meltzer would say the two did a good interview before the match, building heat and making perfect into a subtle heel rather than going for a mixed reaction. They also acknowledged the match from 91 where Hart won, um, from perfect. And they did this throughout the commentary. Really, really good show here. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, there are a couple of pretty dangerous bumps where guys are, you know, taking bumps to the floor and off the apron onto the guardrail really ahead of its time. Pretty, pretty incredible finish here. Um, Hart winds up winning after reversing an inside cradle. And then both guys shake hands afterwards to make sure the fans know perfect really hasn't turned. So even though he was taking on the baby face, he still is a baby face too, but the shocked look on Kurt's face coupled with the perfect commentary <laughs> of he got him because it looks like as again, Mr. Perfect goes for the inside cradle. Looks like he's got him. Brett reverses it and Kurt's in disbelief after really nice. And it's telling a cool story. Again, you remember Brett beat his razor Ramon opponent where he's like falling on him in the middle of a suplex. And now here with an inside cradle. So it's telling the story that he's beating the guys in an old school, classic match, not a fancy finish. And pulling it out of nowhere. And that was the story that we were telling. That's why we didn't want Brett to use the sharpshooter. Because we wanted him pulling these victories out of nowhere. And one of the classic lines was actually in the uh, Bret Hart Razor match from Bobby Heenan. Where just out of nowhere, Bobby goes, you know, Bret Hart is the 14th of 13 children. And I just laughed for 10 minutes on that line. There's lots of little stuff in here too, that you've really got to be paying attention to the psychology, like you were talking about. And Brett would write in his book that these guys have timing like Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, and that it's a sellout at the curtain. The locker room is in awe. And a lot of the guys think this is the better, the best match they've had together. But one of my favorite spots is when he's going for a sharpshooter on Kurt, Kurt takes his taped up quote unquote, broken fingers and bends them back which instantly brings him to his knees. It just eliminates the sharpshooter right away. And it's just great stuff, man. I can't recommend it enough. Um, probably one of the best matches that you'll see. Now think about what you just said. Here's two guys in the middle of a match, guys going for his finish, and the other guy bends his fingers back, and Brett sold it. Yep. And you believed it. They didn't do a Hurricane Rana Plancha, Fernum Snabitz, reverse double gimmick into the three-sided four snacious basis and then get right back up and don't sell a damn thing or do anything. 
he grabbed his taped up fingers that were broken and screwed up from an earlier match and pulled them back and the guy sold it. And that was a spot and it was believable and real and good. Phenomenal. Can't put this over enough. Let's talk about what's next, man. We've got an interview here beforehand with Yokozuna and one with Hulk Hogan, the Hulk Hogan interview. How would you classify it? Tell us what you thought of this Hogan interview prior to the match. Of course, we don't get one after. You know, I mean, it was, it was stereotypical Hulk and it was, you know, that old fashioned, well, let me tell you something, brother. However, the, the old school guy in me, it was, it was the guy that was, uh, letting you know he was going to drop the title, but he was kind of getting screwed out of it. Yeah. That was my take on it. And and it's sort of out of nowhere because he's talking about, you know, he's sort of insinuating that they can't sneak attack him. Right. Insinuating Pearl Harbor or whatever, because that's just what people went to at the time. And he even goes so far as to say, there's no body or water around here, brother. We're into it. <laughs> it's like, God, what are you doing? Well, okay. And you, and you know why there, there was, and this was about the same time. There was this guy named Roger Kent in the AWA who uh, was a commentator for Burns group. And Bobby Heenan and I had been watching a match and it was Saito and somebody else. And they jumped somebody from behind and Roger Kent, and this is Bobby and I watching it around this time. And Roger Kent goes, oh, my God, what a Pearl Harbor job by the Japs. This 1993, and Bobby and I look at each other going, oh, my God, how the hell can he say that? So the Pearl Harbor, we actually showed it to Vince, and we were talking. We were having a good time about it. So Vince was extra sensitive to that as well. So – you get around it as much as you can and you infer everything that you want to without actually saying it out loud. It's weird. Times that, change. It's weird that there's so many stereotypes in wrestling, you know, so far on this show, there's stereotypes in life. No, I'm not arguing that, but I'm saying just like a Japanese heel, like everybody knows a Japanese heel, the way they walk, you know, they have like the creepy, like if you go back and you look at sneaky, yes, like every Japanese, Oh, is he, is he a bad, is he Japanese? Yes. And he's a bad guy. Oh, he's very sneaky. Like, then he must throw salt. It's just like, what the fuck is this? Uh, let's talk about the match. They go 13 minutes and 11 seconds. You can probably guess what Meltzer thought. He gave it a star and a half. Uh, here's directly from his, uh, observer write up. Hogan's reaction coming out greatly eclipsed any other response on the show. He is still to the masses, the star of the show. How much of a drawing card he still is will be determined now as the house show matches with Yokozuna because he's in a viable program chasing the title. And if these matches don't draw considerably bigger crowds than usual, then live WWF wrestling simply has a certain sized audience that no individual in the U S is on his own as a draw anymore. Hogan gave him the entire match teasing his inability to either slam or knock him off his feet. And this was pretty much the typical Jerry Lawler versus monster first match of a series from the old days in which Lawler can't do anything with the guy then pulls down the strap, makes the comeback and then gets screwed and loses. At one point they did a bear hug for two minutes and 15 seconds. I got to tell you, those were the longest two minutes of the match too. Were they not Bruce? 
Like a, a, a bear. He put it on him uh, from every angle possible. And even Bobby Heenan making comment, oh, no, this is worse the way Yokozuna has worked it around to really bear down on the ribs. They had to make something out of it. It's just unbelievable. After kicking out of a belly to belly, Hogan did the Superman comeback and finally knocked him off his feet after three boots to the face. Now, as you remember, as a Hulk Hogan fan, as a little Hulkamaniac, he blocks one punch, throws three punches, uh, sends him into the ropes, big boot. He does that routine, not once, not twice, but three times before Yokozuna finally falls. And then he hits him with a leg drop. And Yokozuna kicks out and they say he's the first person to do so. Uh, of course, Sid vicious did the same thing at the 92 WrestleMania Hogan punches, Mr. Fuji, then a mystery photographer. And it's pretty obvious that this is, I mean, this is the worst fucking costume ever. There are plenty of photographers around, but this guy, he looks like the sensei from kill bill here. Uh, he jumps on the apron, flashes fire in Hogan's eyes. And then Yokozuna gets the pin with a leg drop. And after the match, Yokozuna gives Hogan the bonsai and has to be helped out a star and a half. Let's, there's so much to talk about here. Tell me what you thought of the match watching it now, 25 years after the fact. It was pretty bad. Um, God, it just was so, you know, it was so slow and, you know, Yoko was limited and, Hulkster, I think, you you know, they, they hadn't worked a whole lot together. It was brutal, and it, and it was it was tough. Like you talk about as long as they sat there in that damn bear hug and some of the stuff that the audience, man, they just wanted to get to the finish. They wanted to see the leg drop, one, two, three. And they wanted to see the Hulkster conquer him and move on. And there wasn't, there wasn't that big heat there. So you didn't have the audience involvement in it. You didn't have... Um, that emotional attachment into really wanting to see Hulk overcome the evil Japanese menace. Um, I think that, I think that that pretty much hurt it, but in the, in the fact it just, it wasn't a good match. It just was, it was too long and it was, it just wasn't a good match all in all. But the, you know, the, the, the whole photographer gimmick was an out for Hulk in a way to, to distract him, you know, for that moment, for Yoko to hit him, hit him with the belly to belly, take it home. One, two, three execution was the drizzling shits, but let me ask you this. Did you guys know at this point, this was going to be Hogan's last major show. You know, the rumor and innuendo is that his contract didn't expire until the very end of the year, but he's not working nearly the same schedule. After this show, after King of the ring, I mean, I guess we should mention that, you know, he did work the very fucking next day. Uh, it was a uh, wrestling challenge taping. And I think they did some other tapings there in Columbus. Um, and then he worked the following day after that in Huntington, West Virginia, but then he takes a couple of weeks off and starts hitting some of the bigger areas. You know, he does shows in June back to back in Chicago and then Boston but then we sort of don't see him again until the end of July. And he does that, that tour that we've argued about extensively where they went through Austria and Germany and even France, I think Scotland and England. And I mean, so they hit a lot of those in August, but then that's effectively it 
for his run in the company. Did you know coming out of this, hey, this is really it. He's going to get through the European tour for us and then we're done. Or did you think, and did you leave yourself an out by constantly pushing? He didn't slam him. He didn't slam him. He didn't slam him. I guess what I'm getting to is at this point, was Vince sort of leaving the door open that maybe it might be Lex Luger slam Yokozuna, but maybe the relationship with Hogan gets better. And a month later, it's going to be Hogan who finally sort of gets his revenge on Yokozuna and slams him on that boat. Vince always left that door open for Hulk. And in the back of Vince's mind, Vince always was hoping that things were going to work out. From our vantage point, and I say our vantage point, from my vantage point and Pat's vantage point, we were of the belief that this is Hulk's last big show, and we weren't counting on him uh, going forward. If we had him, great. Uh, that was a bonus. But we were not counting on him, and we weren't making plans for who his next opponent is. All the dates that we had on him, uh, we didn't. You know, we didn't have SummerSlam on him. We didn't have that date on him anymore. So. We just was like, okay, why, you know, why are we even going to think about anything if we don't have any specific dates and times that we're going to be able to program him and bring him back? So for us, in the back of our head, that night we knew that was Hulk's last big show. From Vince's point of view, Vince was still thinking, ah, damn it, I'll I'll talk to him and we'll work everything out. He'll be back. Don't worry about it. He'll be back. What was the strain in the relationship at the time? Is is Hogan just used to getting the bigger paydays and not really not really willing to accept that the business had taken a dip, or is it about creative? What can you tell us? Uh, no, I think at this time it was more about Thunder in Paradise, the the TV show that he had been offered, and he was getting ready for that and he was gearing up for it. So Hulk was thinking that, man, he's going to go do Thunder in Paradise, and Thunder in Paradise is going to be this huge hit because it's the producers from um, Baywatch. Baywatch. And by God, this is going to be the next big big hit, and he's going to be the next big David Hasselhoff. So in our opinion, you know, Hulk was counting his chickens before they were hatched, and that's where his head was. His head was Hollywood. His head was, you know, syndicated TV star. And I'm not going to have to wrestle anymore. Let me ask you this. You know, when you look back at this and you realize not only is Hogan going to lose the title here. And I I know it's because of a fuck finish with the fireball, but he's going to lose to the leg drop. And then they're going to bonsai drop him. That feels like something Hogan that doesn't work for me, brother, unless he thinks there is a return. Like the only way Hogan does that and lets them sort of squash him on the way out is if this isn't really the way out and he thinks they're still going to be, and obviously they're going to do returns in Europe, but I mean, on TV. Well, I think that in the back of Hulk's mind too, I think that he was probably thinking that he and Vince were going to, Vince would come crawling back to him and say, Oh my God, you know, Terry, I want to do all this with you. I'm going to guarantee you all this stuff. But the aftermath and all that stuff, that was Hulk's idea. The finish and all that, that was you know pretty much Hulk and how he wanted to do it. And then the aftermath was, you know, instead of, you know, Vince wanted to get him the hell out of there after the one, two, three, after the fireball. Right. And Hulk was like, man, he needs to do that bonsai on me and squash me and then get me out. 
It's amazing. Give him the ring. Let's talk about Harvey Whippleman and the photographer. This it feels funny that we're throwing fire on on a show where Jerry Lawler has his coming out party, so to speak. That's a Lawler thing. The shooting the fire gimmick, whose idea was that? The silly costume, is that a Richie Posner thing? Why is Harvey the guy? Chat me up about that. Harvey was the guy because he was small enough and they didn't think he would be noticed down there with all the other photographers. And the story behind the match was all of these international press guys from Japan were following Yokozuna around all week long and they were documenting, you know, every second of him winning the championship back. So in the midst of all of these other photographers, you wouldn't notice this one guy. So Harvey was was small. He would fit in with all those photographers. Um, and, you know, they trust they trusted him to be able to load the camera up right and, and hit him with the gimmick. So it was a, a flash thing in the actual flash of the camera where all he had to do was mash a button and it would shoot the fire out. But, um, you know, the problem with it, to me, was as soon as Harvey got up on the apron... Jimmy Hart came over and was pulling him down. Yeah, I didn't understand that. that well, because it made no sense. And the idea behind it was was that the photographer was supposed to get up on the apron, and while the photographer is up on the apron, that Hulk would go over and just be on that side of the ring, and the photographer would kind of lean in with the camera, and inadvert. you know, it's like a photographer trying to get a shot. And this one was, this one photographer was a little overzealous in getting the shot. And when he goes in, he, this fire explodes, his camera explodes in Hulk's face. And then the photographer is upset and he, he runs from ringside because he just cost Hulk Hogan the championship by Jimmy grabbing him. It tells you, okay, this is a work. It drew my attention to it, yep. and and then Harvey kicking him off. It, it just didn't make sense. If you wanted it to be real, I just thought, and, and that was something I don't I don't even know if we knew that Jimmy was going to go over there and grab the foot because when the last I had heard and the last that I was involved in it was kind of like I had just laid out to you that Harvey goes in goes to lean in with the camera. And Hulk is right there, and he, he puts the camera in Hulk's face, and the, the fire shoots off and burns Hulk, and then he gets down and runs away. So I don't know who added that. I don't know. Vince did it. Pat did it. Hulk did it. Jimmy just did it on his own. I don't know. I still, to this day, don't know whose call that was. But to me, that cheapened it. I think you could have sold it another, you know, the other way. Did you guys practice the fireball? Earlier that day, I mean, it feels like that wouldn't be the first time they ever tried to deploy it. They had to fire a few off in the back. Just oh, to yeah. See, right. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. We, we tried it out there at the ring, too, just to make sure that that it would work and that it worked every time. Well, there you go. Uh, let's talk about gotta practice the fire. We talked earlier about Bret Hart being frustrated, sort of uh, coming in to this show. And there's a lot to cover here. So let's just start from the beginning. And we use Brett's book here on May 24th. I was summoned to a secret photo shoot in Halifax to do promotional shots for the SummerSlam 1993 Hogan. And I posed doing a mock tug of war with the world title belt, standing chin to forehead, sneering and gritting our teeth. 
it's important to remember that meeting in Halifax is where they announce that Linda is now the president. Brett would continue. If I faced Hogan at SummerSlam, win or lose, I knew he'd be booed and I'd be the underdog. What didn't occur to me was that Hogan knew it too. On May 29th, Vince called me at home to tell me the big news that I was getting the belt back. What I didn't expect to hear was that he was getting ready to call Hogan and hated the thought of telling him that he was too old and tired for a company whose marketing strategy was now based around a new generation concept. Vince wanted to make Hogan into the Babe Ruth of the WWF and use him more as a special attraction. He asked me not to say anything until he had spoken to Hogan. 10 days later, Vince called again. He warned me that he was about to tell me something that would make me really angry. Hogan was flat out refusing to put me over saying I wasn't in his league. Vince had decided that Yoko would be getting the belt instead. And I couldn't believe that Hogan would do this to me. I remember him shaking my hand at WrestleMania nine and telling me he'd be happy to return the favor. Vince said he'd have one more meeting with Hogan and try to sell him on it. But if he didn't go for it, I'd work with Lawler at SummerSlam instead. Hogan didn't go for it. And I wanted to believe that Vince hadn't told me the whole story. And I made my mind to confront Hogan as soon as he dropped the belt to Yoko. I'd wait until then because it doesn't seem right for me to change Yoko's destiny. So Brett's version of events up to this point. Do you remember the photo shoot in Halifax for SummerSlam 93 with the mock tug of war with the belt? We, yeah, we did do that. We did that and the, the Halifax was a TV taping and it was for something that we were doing, uh, not only for the magazine, but yeah, it was something that in our head way back then that that's where we wanted to go was Hulk and Brett at SummerSlam. Do you, rem- uh, do you remember there being a conversation within the office about God damn it? Hogan won't put Brett over. I remember, well, see, it didn't exactly happen like that from our vantage point, at least from what we were told by Vince was that Hogan wanted to, to do, he wanted to do it to Yoko and Hulk wanted Yoko to take the title. And I think that he felt there was more money there than Brett. Now, how Vince presented that to Brett and how Brett took it, I can see Brett taking it exactly that way. Hulk didn't want to put him over and Hulk didn't want to drop the title to him. You know, Hulk wanted to drop it to a monster. Hulk felt that there was more money in the rematch with Yoko versus a match with Brett being a quote babyface match. And that was how, you know, it was presented to us from Hulk's point of view. God, man, you put me in a babyface versus babyface position again, like with warrior. And they, you know, now they've got to pick and choose and they've got to decide. And you should have, you know, put me against a traditional heel, like the big monster and let me, you know, and let the big monster, the evil menace take it off of me. And that's how it was presented to us. But I can see Vince saying all that shit to Brett. Just to stir it up? Um, Vince was probably pissed. Vince probably, you know, went from one phone call to to the next. And Vince was probably pissed and frustrated over not getting the, the SummerSlam match that he wanted. So once this is directly from Brett's book, once Hogan got back to his dressing room and knocked on the door and stepped in, Jimmy Hart, Dave Hebner, and Beefcake were with him. I said, Terry, I want to speak with you. And we stared at each other. Quote, you told me at WrestleMania nine, you'd be happy to return the favor. And as I understood it, now you won't, don't even want to work with me. You won't put me over. 
and I'm not in your league. Hogan stood there speechless. So I carried on. Well, you're right. You're not in my league on behalf of myself, my family, and most of the boys in the dressing room. You can go fuck yourself. He stuttered brother. You don't know the whole story. And Brett says, I got the story directly from Vince. Terry, you haven't said 10 words to me since you got back almost four months ago. If you want to level with me, then go ahead. I'm right here. And Hogan said, I can't. Why not? Because you just told me to go fuck myself. That's right. And I'll tell you again, go fuck yourself. And I turned and walked out, heading straight for the ring to wrestle Bam Bam for the main event of the tournament. Did you see or hear this confrontation or hear about it? What can you tell us about this meeting in the locker room? I heard about it after the fact from Brett, um, but I don't even think I heard about it that night. I don't think I heard about it until, you know, the TVs after that, that Brett was, you know, still pissed off and had confronted Hulk and said, hey, I heard you wouldn't put me over. And, you know, the way I remembered it back then was that Hulk Hulk didn't say anything and uh, Brett was like, you know, well, fuck you and left. But, uh, yeah, Brett went in and, and confronted him after the fact. Uh, well, I'll tell you something that's never bad. And that's a Henson shave. You and I have been using our Henson razors for a while. We absolutely love them. I've got everybody in my real life using it, even my barber. And she's been doing this for like 20 years. And this is her go-to razor. Now Uh, I'm such a big fan of this razor for a lot of reasons. Number one, it's a family owned business. So, you know, Bruce and I like that, but making razors wasn't even the original plan. You see, Henson is actually an aerospace parts manufacturer. These cats have made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars Rover. And what they're doing is they're taking their aerospace grade CNC machines to cut metal razors that are just 0.0013 inches. And I know what you're thinking. Well, how the hell thick is that? Well, it's less than the thickness of a human hair. Think about that. Thinner than a human hair. And what does that mean for you? It means a secure and stable blade. It's going to give you a vibration free shave and it gets better. The razor also has built in channels to evacuate hair and cream, which makes clogging virtually impossible. You see Henson wanted to make the best razor, not the best razor business. What that means for you is no plastic, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, no planned obsolescence. And the Henson razor uses a standard dual edge blade like your grandfather or every professional wrestler is familiar with. So it gives you that old school feel but it gives you all the benefits of new school tech. You see, pop pop never had a razor that was 0.0013 inches. And once you own a Henson razor, it's only three to $5 a year to replace the blades. Think about that. When you go down to the drugstore to get your replacement blades for your current plastic gimmick that you have in your drawer, dude, they keep it under lock and key. That's how expensive it is. And it ain't going to last you a year. It's going to last you a month or two. What if you could do it for three to $5 for the whole year? It's time to say no to subscriptions. Say yes to a razor that will last you a lifetime. Visit HensonShaving.com slash wrestle. It'll pick the razor for you and use the promo code wrestle and you'll get two years worth of blades for free with your razor. Just be sure to add them to your cart. That's 100 free blades. When you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G.com slash wrestle. And use the promo code wrestle Bruce, this Henson r- razor deal. It's the best around. Is it not? Do, do, do. 
simple, Daddy. It's simple. It's easy. I, so I had to teach you how to do it. But you ain't even getting under the chin or nothing like that. But it works and it takes you back. Have you have you put it on your Gooch yet? No. Oh, it's Gooch tested, Gooch approved. Check it out. Hensonshaving.com slash wrestle. Excuse me. No, no, not right now. After the show, Bruce. Oh, okay. When I bathe. If you bathe. Okay. It's debatable today. <laughs> Basically said, hey man, I heard you don't want to put me over. You don't want to put me over, then fuck you. Let's let's talk about what's next here. Uh, on the network, we see just a fucking absolute drizzling shit interview from Terry Taylor and the Smoking Guns and the Steiners. They've got Terry Taylor all over this network version interviewing the guys. How do you think he did? Um. Well, you know there there's a. There was a spot in there. I think he interviewed Mr. Perfect. And all I could think of is if, if roles were reversed in that box of gimmicks, if it would have been Mr. Perfect that would have been interviewing, well, if it would have been the Red Rooster, Kurt Hennig interviewing Mr. Perfect Terry Taylor, if roles had been reversed. And that was all the thing going through my mind. Uh, Terry wasn't good. Um, he, he was not a good interviewer here. And, you know, partially because he's too big to be an interviewer. And, he just was a little lost. I don't think he was very well prepped either. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you know, after, oh. after anybody says anything, he says, hey. that's a good point. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was funny. The guns had just started with us. So the guns are relatively new and they get a pass. But when you've got the, the smoking guns, Terry Taylor, Scott Steiner, Rick Steiner, and, and Rob Rex Steiner is the best promo guy of the whole thing. Well, just tells you something right there. At least Robbie got everybody excited. Rick and Scott Steiner are tagging with the smoking guns to take on the head shrinkers and money. Inc. They only go six minutes and 49 seconds. Uh, Meltzer would write good pacing, but nothing as a match as it was too short for anything to develop. Jim Ross said that IRS held the tag team title four times with three different partners. Four times is right, but the only partners were Barry Windham and Ted DiBiase. And that's acknowledging him as Mike Rotundo. Scott Steiner was only in briefly and Rick was never in a star here. Uh, not much to say about the match here. I guess it's so short, but the idea that one of the guys never even got in there. Pretty funny. Yeah. And you know, the match was what it was. It was meant kind of be a, a play, you know, placement match, go on out there guys and distract them for a little bit. And then, uh, it's, it's terrible when you have that caliber of talent out in the ring for a popcorn match, basically. But it's, let's bring them down from the title match with Hulk and Yogo, and then we'll get them back up with uh, Sean afterwards. Next up, we've got, um, I, I guess I should ask this. Who, who thought it was a good idea to have the smoking guns bring a fucking set of pistols into the ring and fire them off? Well, they were smoking guns, and after they would shoot them off, they smoked. So they were smoking guns. And, you know, at least during the match, again, Bobby Heenan came back with some of the best lines in this, you got to listen to it with the commentary. Thank God we're not doing commentary on this one as a watch along, but Jim Ross, as Jr. does, and definitely did then, which was new for us. Every time somebody would be in, you'd get the, well, IRS, he's, uh, went to Syracuse university and, uh, smoking guns, you know, Billy Gunn went to Sam Houston state on a rodeo scholarship. 
and Bobby Heenan's retort was, uh, Jim, do you know anybody that didn't go to school? And it was just those kind of comebacks throughout the whole thing. It's like, you know, how the hell do you go on a rodeo scholarship? What, did he go on a roping scholarship? And it was just constant banner back and forth that made it pretty damn enjoyable for me. But he had some great lines in there. Sean Michaels is up next, but before he's out, he's doing a promo where he introduces Diesel. Uh, Sean has uh, clearly not gotten completely comfortable making some, some fun facials and whatnot as Mean Gene's trying to introduce him and sort of give an update on the Hulkster where they're saying that, you know, he's at a medical facility and they're going to check out his eyes and his vision and blah, blah, blah. This is the first time we're introduced and hear the name Diesel. What do you remember about this promo? Because it really is sort of the coming out party for Diesel. Yeah, it was. And for a while, you know, we didn't have the name. Shane McMahon actually came up with the name Diesel. And it was a, you know, a cool name. And Shane was talking about, you know, the young guys, if you see somebody who's really built and looks cool, man, they're Diesel. You know, that was a cool thing. It's kind of like if you were like sweating, really sweaty, you were beefing. Uh, Diesel was Diesel. So don't shake your head at me. Uh, (laughs) So Shane named him, and and this was. This was an opportunity to finally introduce him and give a name to the big nasty bodyguard for Shawn Michaels. And then, of course, we're going to see the actual match. He's going to be working with Crush here. Crush is rocking one of the finest Alabama mullets ever. How would you describe how would you describe this hair that crushes this, this, this whole match was the mullet match. Everybody in it had a mullet. Uh Crush, you know, had the business up, business in front, party in the back, all the way down to the middle of his back. Sean had a mullet. Diesel had a mullet. Mike Kyoto, the referee, had a mullet. And it was the battle of the mullets. It was I, I, I laughed through half of the damn thing just writing down the, the battle of the mullets, because it was well, I guess that was the style at the time. I think I might have even had a mullet at that time. But, um, yeah, Crush had the brown hair, and then he had the long blonde in back rocking, man. Shaka bra. Roll Tide. Shaka bra. Shaka bra. That's not something I thought I'd hear today. Uh, they're going to go 11 minutes and 14 seconds. Meltzer would say that Crush has improved and that he can do good moves and has agility but he still doesn't work well with others. He's going to have a problem in that he's so much larger than almost all the wrestlers, especially with most everyone off the juice. Uh, in the end, uh, we get a, a finish where crush gets a lot of near falls and then both doinks come down and distract him. And that allows Michaels to come from behind for a super kick for the pin star and a half. This is not the usual Shawn Michaels pay-per-view affair, but I guess he's working with crush. He can only do so much. what do you think of the match? I thought the match wasn't bad. You know, it was a typical big man, small man match. And used, they used Diesel right, kind of to neutralize Crush a little bit. And then I love being able to see, you know, we had Steve Kern and Matt Bourne as the doinks come out, continue that storyline on because the storyline was mainly doink versus Crush at that time and, and continued it on. And <laughs> As many times as we've rehearsed those two guys walking to the ring and the arms swinging and doing everything, doing the mirror, like in the I Love Lucy um, Harpo Marx scene, um, I enjoyed the hell out of it. I thought it was a good match. This is not my favorite match, for sure. I guess it's worth mentioning that on the June 6th Raw, to sort of set this up, 
that's when Michaels regained the Intercontinental title, defeating his old former tag team partner, Marty Jannetty, which you can hear all about in the archives at somethingtowrestle.com. And that's also where he debuted the new bodyguard. Uh, but after seeing him on Raw, this is really the first time we get to learn who he is and, and what's going on. I'm sure we'll talk about this on a Kevin Nash episode, but allegedly, uh, Sean was watching WCW Saturday night on TBS and saw Vinny Vegas and he asked Rick Steiner about him and Rick goes and calls Nash and says, Sean wants to bring him in. So according to the rumor and innuendo, Nash goes to Ole, says he wants to quit wrestling. He's tired of it. Wants to go back to bouncing, you know, at strip clubs and whatever, and ask for his release and Ole gives it to him. So he goes straight to a fax machine at the WCW office and faxes the release to the WWF. And he's brought in right after that. I'm sure we'll tell the story sometime, but is that the cliff notes version of how Kevin Nash came to be a part of the WWF? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, Sean had an idea for this bodyguard deal and we said, we can't talk to him without a release. (laughs) We had a release shortly thereafter. And then we flew him up to meet with us at the house. Fascinating. Um, if you want to hear more about Sean during this era, we've got Sean 93 through 95 also in the archives. And of course the rockers episode there for you as well. Something to wrestle.com. Let's get to the last match on the show. And then we've got some more fallout for Brett and Hogan Uh, in the main event, the finals of this tournament, Brett Hart would pin Bigelow in 18 minutes and 11 seconds. Meltzer really dug it. He gave it three and three quarter stars. He says, Hart's doing the injured and exhausted bit. So Bigelow dominated for such a climatic finish. There was very little crowd reaction early. The first half of the match wasn't anything special, ending when Luna Vachon hit Hart with a chair, and Bigelow came off the top rope with a headbutt and got the pin at 9.26. But referee Earl Hebner ran out, and first they teased that Hart won via DQ, and then they ordered the match to be restarted. The last eight minutes were hot action with both men getting near falls, ending with Hart getting a pin using a victory roll, three and a quarter stars, three and three quarter stars. I love this, but I've always been a, a big fan of Bret Hart's in ring work. And I think Bam Bam Bigelow is super underrated. So I enjoyed this and I love the victory roll finish. What'd you think of the match? The star of the night and his star is not going to stop shining here at the end of this match was Bret Hart throughout the entire night. It was the Bret Hart show and it was a clinic on how to tell a story not only in a match, but over over an entire event. I thought Brett was a master at it. And this night proved why, you know, he was definitely the best. It was a great story. It was logical. And, you know, hats off to Pat Patterson for the finish. Just when you think you've, you've got one with the heel victory and the celebration and everything, restart the match and and move on and crown your babyface champion. I... I Jesus, uh, the note I had on this match, which is ironic that, of course, Meltzer has exactly the opposite, was how they had the audience involved in this match because they had them involved in it, invested in it. They were popping for false finishes. They were up and down with it, and they were behind Brett and wanted to see him win this damn thing. And masterfully done, just masterfully done. Good shit. Go watch it. Uh, This is one of Bret Hart's finest nights. You know, you get great matches with uh, Razor Ramon, who's a hell of a hand, Bam Bam Bigelow, more of the same. And Kurt, man, how do you beat that? Mr. Perfect and Bret Hart, get after it. Uh, Coming out party to me for Bret Hart. I got to admit, as a wrestling fan, 
I still saw him as sort of that intercontinental guy, even during his first world title run. He just wasn't really my guy. But on the heels of this King of the Ring, I saw him differently. You know, three wins in a night. You guys made him here, at least to me. After the match, they have the uh, presentation for the King's robe and crown and scepter. And they have like the little stage that you used to see Mean Gene do promos with the guys that's still in the arena, sort of off to the side of the entrance, but still very visible for everyone in the stands. When Jerry Lawler comes out all of a sudden, cuts a promo, and Bret Hart starts to say the only thing that Jerry Lawler is the king of is the Burger King and gets a Burger King chant going. Old school classic heel stuff. Lawler just destroys Hart with the scepter, smashes the crown, uh, throws the throne on top of him, and that's how they go off the air. What'd you think of the uh, the post match shenanigans here with Jerry Lawler? And by the way, Jerry Lawler here throws one of the best working punches of all time. Yeah, Lawler always has thrown a great punch, and to me, you would never see such horrible blocking in a WWE event today. And it was we had Lawler's back for most of it. So as a producer, I'm going nuts because all I see is Jerry Lawler's back, and we should have blocked that out a little bit more and actually walked through it, but. The idea of Jerry Lawler and being on a WWE pay-per-view and coming out, man, it was surreal, and it was – I thought it was cool as shit. And we needed an opponent for Brett at SummerSlam. You know, we weren't going to have Hogan, so we're like, we're going to go with what we do have and thought that Jerry Lawler is an attraction with his mouth and not having to work one single match – felt that Lawler would be able to be a draw working with Brett as the king, and they had a natural rivalry with the crown. Um, those crowns, both of them, Lawler's crown is the drizzling shits, and the crown that we had for Brett was the drizzling shits. You know, when he throws it down and it just bounces because it's made of plastic. But, again, the story was cool. It was nice seeing Lawler on on the pay-per-view and, and getting that kind of good old-fashioned heat. And then, again, Hats off to Bret Hart, the way that he positioned himself, laying backwards down on those steps. was well, just some really cool shit that was a nice way to leave. You get your baby face pop with a new king, a baby face king, and then you get your baby face left lane at the end of the night. I liked it. Let's talk about you know what he's doing here because he thinks just a few days prior to this or you know 10 days prior to this, He's going to be working with Hulk Hogan at SummerSlam here. Obviously he's getting a curveball, and now he's going to be working with Jerry Lawler. So that's what they're setting up here. And that makes sense. But really, and truly Vince has sort of pigeonholed himself in here because if, if he's working with Lawler, he can't pivot away and put him with Yoko. If the Hogan situation doesn't work itself out. So it does lend itself to the idea that Hogan was always plan a for the slamming on the intrepid and Luger was going to be sort of plan B. But when you know, you've got a pissed off Bret Hart who really wants to be the top guy. Does that make sense? Why wouldn't you leave yourself an out in case you couldn't get Hogan to the table for SummerSlam? Why would you just go back with Bret and Yoko at SummerSlam? 
I think because Vince, you know, really wanted to to kind of move on, he didn't want to go back to Brett and Yoko, and he didn't feel that if he was going to put it on Yoko, his his whole idea of the championship was changing. And that was a battle in and of itself, too, trying to get Vince to say, let's leave it on Yoko, a big, nasty, unbeatable champion. That was a battle for Vince. You know, he didn't want to do it. as He certainly didn't want to do it as long as we did it. You know, shit, we got it all the way to, to WrestleMania 10 before we made the switch. So that was an accomplishment in and of itself. So there were a lot of balls in the air at this point. We could, we could have done Lawler on TV and gotten away with it if we needed to, you know, make that switch. But we also had to have something in place to go to SummerSlam. You still had two months. So there's, there's a lot of things we could have switched. We could have done it in house shows, made a different attraction for SummerSlam. We should talk about our friends at blue chew. Uh, I don't know what JJ Dillon's really into. I have to admit, I may have to do a little more research on that, but I know for sure that, uh, as we get a little older, we don't quite feel like we used to. I mean, remember the days when you were always ready to go? Well, now maybe you need a little something extra. Maybe you're looking for a little extra boost of confidence. We're talking about bluechew.com. Let me be clear. This is not just for guys who <clears throat> have a problem. This is for guys who want to put on a five-star match. This is for guys who are looking to become an iron man. This is for guys who are looking to win the most falls in an hour. This is for guys who are looking to be a 60 minute man. Blue chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra, Cialis and Levitra, but a chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. Take them anytime day or night. So plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. And the process is so simple. You just sign up at bluechew.com. You consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. And here's the best part. It's all done online. That means no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversation, no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Bluechew's tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package. But there won't be anything discreet about your package. Blue Chew wants to help you have better sex. Discover your options at bluechew.com. Chew it and do it. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew for free when you use our promo code Wrestle at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com. The promo code is Wrestle to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring today's podcast. So, Bruce, show me with your hands before and after with Blue Chew. <laughs> You'd have made a, a great, uh, base running coach. <laughs> Look at it. Shake it at me. Put that thing down. Put that away. How, how was Jerry getting along with everybody here? You know, Jerry had been a long time promoter in Memphis. A lot of these guys had come through Memphis, maybe had less than awesome experiences. You know, he probably made a few enemies along the way. He, he would disagree with that. I'm sure. But a lot of the guys I'm sure had a, a different opinion of him now that he's here very early into his run. What's his reception? Uh, not good. Not good. I think that there was still a lot of residual heat from the Memphis territories and people, you know, lumping him and Jerry Jarrett one in the same and feeling that if they had gotten a shaft in, in Memphis, you know, as we talked about, you know, before so many times, the the payoffs in Memphis 
you didn't make money. You know, Bob Holly, uh, last week we just talked about the kind of money he made in Memphis or lack thereof. And if your last name wasn't Jared or Lawler, you didn't make money in Memphis. So there was a lot of heat still on Jerry Lawler, and he wasn't, put it this way, he was not welcomed with open arms into the WWE locker rooms by the boys. They felt that he would have to prove himself and it was going to take some time before they would, uh, you know, the jury was still out on him. Well, the jury was not out on Bret Hart here uh, in his book. He can't wait to put himself over. He says, uh, Bammer and I had our best match ever after 20 long minutes of Bammer bouncing me around like a basketball. I jumped on his shoulders, dove down to grab his ankles and pinned him with a victory roll. There was no mistaking who the real champion was. Is that's fun. Is Brett winning here an effort to sort of pacify him or just keep him as a top guy? Since you know, you've got to sort of sort through this world title situation for a minute. It was a way to keep him the, the top guy without putting the championship on him. So yeah, it was a way to, to say, okay, uh, Brett's been intercontinental champion. He's been WWE champion. So now he's going to be the first ever King of the ring and for pay-per-view audiences, television audiences worldwide this was the first ever king of the ring because it was the first one on pay-per-view so for for our purposes brett was first king of the ring let's talk about what happens when he gets back to the dressing room he wrote in his book vince pulled me aside to lecture me about how unprofessional it was of me to tell hogan off in fact of the three of us i felt that i was the only one who was being professional winning king of the ring is great i said but it just doesn't pay the same as being world champion. And you and I both know it. It was one of those rare times when Vince had no comeback for perhaps the first time in my career. I really did believe that I was the best worker in the business and that I would never take a backseat to another wrestler again. Do you remember hearing about this meeting after the show with Vince? Yeah, I didn't hear about it until afterwards. That's when I heard about, you know, Brett going in and talking to Hulk and all that. So that wasn't until after after the case, uh, after the show, probably even the next day. So let's keep going here. Uh, Hulk, of course, has a different version of this story in his book. He says when he got to WrestleMania 9, he said to Vince, look, man, we both know I'm done here. The moment has passed. The love affair is over, but I've got an idea. And what's that? And Vince said, after my tag match is over, when Bret Hart gets beat by Yokozuna, how about if I come out to protest the way Bret lost? Yokozuna's manager, Mr. Fuji, can challenge me to get in the ring against Yokozuna, and boom, I beat Yoko to win the world title. Then I go to the next pay-per-view and drop the belt back to Yokozuna, and I'm out of here. That was the deal. Vince had agreed to it, and I thought, boy, I just scored me a couple more big paydays, and I didn't mind doing a job for Yokozuna because I love the guy to death. It was all set. Now we talked about this a lot in WrestleMania nine. We're going to try to do this without shouting at each other. Is that the way you remember it? Well, again, the part left out there was the international tour that Hulk was going to go on. Sure. And Vince felt that it was going to be better to bill Hulk as the champion. And for all that going in there to bill Hulk Hogan as the WWE champion. So, again, that's how it's presented to us. What actually transpired between Vince and Hulk, I wasn't there for that conversation. But I can give you the conversation, you know, that Vince had back to us. And that was to be able to utilize this and get the absolute most bang for our buck 
while we for sure have Hulk, and like I said, you know, after uh, whatever June, July, whatever it was, Hulk was going on to do Thunder in Paradise. So we didn't, you know, you're trying to figure, okay, well, if we can get maybe get this other SummerSlam date, all these other things. There was just a, a lot of unknowns at that point. But uh, I think in in everybody's version, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle there. So let's talk about, I mean, there's so much to talk about here. And I know that we did this in a big way at WrestleMania 9, but I want to do it again. Hulk says, before we got to King of the Ring, about a month later, Bret Hart got in my face and said, you son of a bitch. Vince McMahon told me you won't drop the belt to me. And I said, brother, I'm dropping the belt to Yokozuna. That's the deal I made. And Brett said, that's not what Vince told me. He said, you wouldn't drop the belt to me because I'm not in your league and I couldn't lace up your boots. And I said, well, how about me and you go get in a room with Vince right now? Finally, the three of us, Vince, Brett, and myself wound up in a room together. And Brett said to Vince, didn't you tell me that Hogan wouldn't drop the belt to me? And Vince said, Brett, that's just what you thought you heard. Hulk said, I had a feeling Vince wasn't going to be straight up with Brett. And I think Brett felt the same way. But Vince was the boss, and there was nothing Brett could do about it other than fume a little. I was fuming a little myself. To tell you the truth, I didn't care if Brett Hart got the belt or not. It just pissed me off that Vince had told me one thing and told Brett another because everybody thought it was my decision to not drop the belt to Brett. It made it look like I wasn't a team player. So the next day, they're in Columbus, and he writes, I was so sore that I could barely drive to the building in Columbus for TVs as I hobbled in. Hogan came straight to me. He motioned me with his big finger and says, come here. I stared at him and he softened and asked me, can I have a word with you? I nodded and we went off for a talk. Terry told me, yes, I was supposed to win the belt back, but that's when Vince changed our contest to SummerSlam to a non-title match. He said he'd no longer wanted to do a match with me, but I clearly remembered the photo shoot we'd done with the belt. And Vince had told me that I'd beat Hulk with the sharpshooter. I knew what I'd be told and I stood firm. Quote, Vince said that you said I wasn't good enough for you to even consider putting me over and then I wasn't in your league. Hogan says, that's not true, brother. With a mad look in his eye, Terry tugged me by the sleeve towards Vince's office and barged right in. I didn't mind. I wanted to know which one of my supposed friends was lying to me. Vince directed pleading eyes at me. And then when Hogan retold his story, Vince coolly lied to my face. I never, ever said it would be a title match, Vince says. I realized there was some sort of head game going on between Vince and Hogan at this point, And I was merely a pawn to be played with and discarded when Hogan left the contract, he had tears in his eyes and it would be a long time before I'd see him again. Tell me about this. We're going to get all three guys in the room together. It feels like this happened a lot with Bret Hart, whether it was with Shawn Michaels or with Hulk Hogan. Tell me about this three-way meeting to the best of your recollection that day in Columbus. Well, again, I think, you know, there is probably truth, uh, somewhere in the middle of that right now. Do I believe that Vince may have said something to Brett that bet Brett misconstrued? Yes, I do. I, I believe that Brett probably heard what he wanted to hear. Um, Vince can be very selective and sometimes Vince will say things that you're hearing. Oh my God, I'm going to be the world champion forever. And I'm going to headline this and I'm going to do that. Or if somebody, if Vince says, God damn it, I could see you with that championship someday. Vince is putting the title on me next week. That's what guys hear in their heads sometimes. So 
you, you hear both sides of that and everything else, and the only side that's missing is Vince's side of it. I think that the, the truth is somewhere in the middle of all of that bullshit, and it comes down to a lot of he said, she said bullshit. And in the middle of it, you know, to me, the best thing, for me anyway, always was if there was, you know, he said, she said shit, I always like to get everybody in the same room. And so that's, you know, that's something I have done with Vince to where it's like, oh, hey, you told Vince this or so-and-so said that. Let's go get everybody together. You know, say it to my face. And then at least, you know, where the hell you stand. But I'm I'm sure at some point in here, you know, it was all just uh, a lot of he said, she said feelings were hurt and people were sore and pissed off and, and not knowing what the hell to do. And somewhere in the middle there is is where it all falls out. Vince trying to please everybody. Of course, we mentioned that Hogan winds up winds up appearing and, and working that TV taping in Columbus and a couple other shows right after. Takes a little bit of a break and then comes back and hits the two big shows in Chicago and Boston. Uh, he's usually working tag matches there with Brutus Beefcake, uh, taking on Money Inc. But then when they go on that European tour in july at the end of july and early august he wrestles like eight matches with yokozuna there he wins them all by count out and then he's out of here you know did we've talked about the relationship that vince has with the talent and how sometimes it's almost like a father son it's more than just business what was the relationship like with him and hulk at this point did this affect you know vince personally to see Hogan leave. I mean, he's really been a mainstay of the company and the guy who really Vince built on his back. And now he's out of here. The relationship was, was strained and it was, you know, it was kind of like, uh, why though? I mean, chat me up on why usually when a relationship is strained, somebody feels like they didn't get the better end of the deal that maybe the other person has wronged them somehow. What was the issue? I think the the issue was that that Hulk wasn't going to be there all the time anymore. You know, you you add to that that you got to see both sides of it too. I I think there was a part of Vince that that may have been hurt. You know, Hulk's leaving me after all I've done for him. On the other side of that, Vince felt a bit of relief that, okay, now we're going to be forced to make a change. We're not going to have Hulk to rely on anymore to where we can just, you know, in case of uh, emergency, break glass and put Hulk out there and everything will be okay. It was forcing Vince to make a change, and it was forcing him to move on without Hulk Hogan. He embraced that, but I think that there was also hurt feelings that, you know, how, how can you leave me? I think just the human side of it, was hurt a little bit, and I, and it was kind of like a child leaving and finally moving out and going out on their own. So it was it was both sides of it, but I think that in the end, the the relief is what won over. Was there a top once you know this European tour goes down? Does Vince know then? Hey, he's going to sit out SummerSlam. He's not coming back. And was the decision to sit out SummerSlam based on what the payday was or wasn't for King of the Ring 93? No, I think the decision was made before that. I think not before King of the Ring, but I think the decision was pretty much made right around King of the Ring time. 
it just seems funny to me that, you know, even Hogan says in his book, Hey, I scored me a couple big paydays, but then he opts to not do anything for SummerSlam 93. Well, his big, his big paydays were the European tour and the, uh, yeah. King of the ring and other pay-per-view. So those, those are big paydays. Well, you know, we, we sort of talked about, you know, every angle you could hear from King of the ring. It is an important time in the company because it is sort of a transition where it's the new generation. It's diesel. It's razor. It's Brett. It's Sean, but in a weird way, it's also Duggan. It's also Bigelow. It's also Hogan. Where do you rate this King of the Ring pay-per-view? Well, as far as, you know, as far as overall shows, it's an important one because it was the first one. You know, it was the first King of the Ring pay-per-view and it became, you know, the fifth of the big 5 for us uh over the years and and it stayed that way for a long time until we went to the the monthly pay-per-views and the in your houses and what have you. So it was important in that regard. I think that King of the Ring was a good attraction because it was different. And I like having those themed shows where you've got something else that people are vying for. So I like that tournament aspect. Vince is not a big guy on tournaments. And the fact that he did King of the Ring was him giving in to the tournament concept and allowing it to happen. So that was an important thing, too. I think the show holds up, man, going back and watching it. You know, I'm guilty of fast-forwarding through shit a lot of times. And I watched this whole thing, man, uh, bumper to bumper. And it was like, okay, it's not that bad. Next week coming up, we have got Bad Blood 2003. Of course, that's coming to you on the exact anniversary of bad blood which went down on june 15th 2003 so just in time for our 15 year anniversary and it happened in your hometown of houston texas at the compact center let's run through what the card was it was Nowinski and rodney mack taking on the dudley boys we also had scott steiner working with test booker t taking on christian la resistance is going to be working with kane and rob van dam we've got goldberg taking on chris jericho rick flair working with sean michaels stone cold steve austin is doing a redneck triathlon with eric bischoff and in your main event in a hell in a cell with mick foley as the very special guest referee we've got triple h defending his world title against kevin nash what do you remember what might we talk about if we cover or when we cover rather bad blood 2003 next week on june 15th uh, some of the incredible phone calls and what ifs that almost happened uh, that entire week trying to work on some pretty big surprises that never really came to fruition that we were trying to make happen all the way up until about an hour before the show um, so a lot of crazy stuff and we're going to discuss it all right here next week and that's it for me he is at Bruce Pritchard I am at Hey Hey It's Conrad and we are out of time until next week Right here on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Fight Plus is the ultimate digital platform for live sports and entertainment, and they're now offering a free seven day trial at tryfight.com. Fight Plus is packed with a premium live event schedule, over a thousand hours of live action every year, and a library of more than 4,000 hours on demand, plus exclusive content you can't get anywhere else. Fight is a great partner of ours. They support us, so let's support them. Give that free seven-day trial a shot, and you'll be a member for life. That's tryfight.com. T-R-Y-F-I-T-E dot com.
Hey guys, need to call a quick time out here. Wanted to tell your listeners what I've been telling my listeners over at OU didn't know for a while now about all the cool things happening over at adsfreeshows.com. On a bonus episode of Arn, the Enforcer watches back Beach Blast 92 with the ultimate heel and baby face in Rick Rude and Ricky Steamboat. Draw me a baby face. Something that everybody could get behind. Kids, women, old folks, young folks, men, you know, all guys wanted to be him. Women, I'm sure, wanted to be with him. Uh, He was the all-around package. On volume 55 of the Ask Conrad series, Conrad talks about some of his dream podcast partners, including a couple of degenerates. You know, from inside the business and taking over and NXT and all that, I don't think you could get a better podcast partner than Triple H there just because he's done so much. However, if you're talking about wanting to learn more about the psychology of wrestling and what makes a match and how to develop talent and all that, could you beat Shawn Michaels? That's just a small taste of what we got waiting for you. With four levels to choose from, see for yourself why ads-free shows is the best value in wrestling today. Sign up now at adsfreeshows.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? Can <laughs> you pay me more? Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.